I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, not afraid of anything. Bionic. Not afraid of anything. Yep. Not frightened. Like spiders and stuff you're not afraid of? A little bit afraid of heights. Okay. You know, I'm afraid of widths. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's wonderful to be back with you for another edition of the Future Quake Show. Uh, and we have a topic this week that just started to happen to back into. I was in a discussion with our guest, and he mentioned uh, about his writing of a chapter uh, in the book, How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. And he said, you know, it'd be an interesting little show to do a show about what we wrote on, or what he wrote on. And uh, we had a little opening here. and thought, well, we'll just scoot this in here, you know, and sort of the hubbub of getting ready for the conference. And, mm-hmm. and this has turned out to be a topic that is a, quite an in-depth Thought-provoking topic, mm-hmm. is it not? Indeed. And we just scratched the surface in here. I think a lot of you all are going to be really uh, working over this. We've got with us this week one of our old favorites, Chris Pinto, the founder of Adullam Films, one of the country world's top documentary filmmakers, particularly in the Christian world. Uh, and he was the author of a chapter called The Church and Secret Societies, which is taken out of the book How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. And our topic this week is The True Faith of the Founding Fathers, and the roots and premises of patriotic Christianity. Like we aren't controversial enough. All right. We thought we'd throw what little caution we had to the wind All this right, week. let's make everybody mad, even we the should, people who support us. We should just about <laughs> alienate almost everybody here. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's what Future Quake's about, is to go where no show has yeah. tread before. <laughs> uh, we'll have a lot to say about this, but why don't we just introduce it, and we'll come back and have our little say. All right. So here's Chris Pinto, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Ain't Scared Bionic. Ain't Scared? Yep. Okay. Well, I, I don't know what shadowing not, that is, for or after shadowing, but... Well, I'm not frightened. You're not frightened. As okay. per the book that we are talking about. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's because... I need to connect the, the dots. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm a little slow-witted, Mr. Bionic. Uh, and it's because of a very special guest that we have today regarding a very special writing that we're going to be talking about. We actually have an old friend back to our show, uh, Chris Pinto, uh, who is the uh, founder of Adullam Films, one of our premier Christian documentary filmmakers. He's getting almost as much airtime as Merv these days. I know. I know. On a whole bunch Chris of is sort of like the the fifth beetle here, you know, of, of Future Quake, Futurian. Uh, Brother Chris, it's great to have you back on our show. Well, thank you for having me. I am uh, I'm always honored to be here with you guys. Well, we know these are extremely busy days for you from a lot of things we know you have going on behind the scenes, as well as uh, some new uh, products that have come out just recently. Uh, but what you were alluding to is we're going to talk uh, to Mr. Pinto today uh, about a chapter out of the book that's now available uh, called How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. It's a book that has 20 authors, uh, and then it's being published by Defender Press, uh, uh, Tom Horn's Publishing Group. It's available for sale uh, at the front of futurequake.com. Uh, I wrote a chapter in it, and Brother Chris here has written a chapter uh, regarding the church and secret societies. And uh, it is a fascinating chapter, and in fact, uh, it is something that, that uh, can cause quite a bit of controversy and at least intense deliberations, and 
that's what we're all about here at Future Quake. So we're looking forward to talking about that uh, here t- here tonight. Uh, since you have been a prolific guest on our show, uh, if our audience members are not familiar with your background, then I say shame on them. Uh, because actually they can hear the details of your background in our archive of past shows with you under the Past Shows tab at futurequake.com. So if you're a newer listener, uh, just go there, check out the archive. You'll find out a little bit more about uh, Brother Chris here. I will summarize your background by saying you are arguably the top Christian documentary filmmaker in the world today with your prior works uh, winning New York and Los Angeles Film Critic Awards as well as a Tully Award. Uh, these productions include your Secret Mystery Series, the Megiddo series, and special topics such as the Kinsey Syndrome, and your latest production on the history of the preservation of the Bible entitled A Lamp in the Dark, as well as numerous other productions now underway. And uh, I'll have to compliment you on A Lamp in the Dark for the, the fine acting that was in there. Yeah, I think some, some of the amazing, casting you did was, was really fantastic. Amazing actors. <laughs> yeah, they, they were really two brilliant guys in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, uh, who, who played a, uh, uh, a middle-aged knight and, uh, and then a mad monk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, they were really the outstanding addition to the, to the cast. And you're not referring whole... about, you're not referring to us, are you? No, no, I was, well, yes, actually. It, we don't, it is the two of you. We don't fish for compliments. Well, thank you so much yeah, for that yeah. unsolicited compliment. Yeah. We appreciate yeah. that so much. Feel free to sprinkle them liberally yeah. throughout the, Rest of the interview, and and and, <laughs> and those are available at adultfilms dot com, correct? Yes, at adultfilms dot com, anybody can go and uh, you can actually watch previews of A Lamp in the Dark uh, okay. on adultfilms dot com. Well, and then I suggest you actually put down some coin and get a copy Hard of A Lamp in the Dark. Uh, it's, it's very important. Uh, today we are going to discuss a very provocative chapter, as I've said, in the uh, called the Church and Secret Societies that you wrote for this new book, uh, How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. Uh, and the discussion today will, is going to be quite provocative, and I think it's going to incite a wide range of responses from people. And, and it's a topic that you and I alone have that had. That usually a, means gather the pitchforks for some segment of our I tell you what, and everybody's thinking cap is going to be getting warm on this one. Um, because you and I alone, uh, Brother Chris, have had some very vigorous, almost heated discussions, but in a spirit of mutual respect, of course, uh, which even raised the concerns uh, recently of some restaurant pa- uh, patrons in our recent Cracker Barrel discussion on this topic, if you remember, uh, Brother yeah, Chris. We, yeah, we were we were approached by a, a stranger who overheard everything. Uh, yeah, it, it does. It's uh, uh, it's a very controversial issue. Well, but but this is a hard teaching discussion that really needs to be had by the American church today. And that's really what Future Quake's all about. So to begin our discussions today, uh, to start off right with both feet right into the middle of this chapter, you begin early in your writing talking about a concept that you briefly mentioned called patriotic Christianity. Can you ex- define that or explain what you mean by patriotic Christianity in the context of why it's important? Well, the way that I define patriotic Christianity is the uh, the idea that begins really with the American Revolution and the founding of the United States of America and the idea of a lot of Christian patriots who believe that our country was founded as a Christian nation somehow or other for the purpose of uh, promoting the teachings of the Bible and the cause of the gospel uh, in this country and around the world. 
and that our uh, and that the founding fathers of the American Revolution somehow or other fought a Christian revolution and were laying down their lives on the field of battle uh, for the cause of the gospel, supposedly. Uh, for for the cause of Jesus Christ, they went out and fought the British and uh, won the war uh, so that they could establish this as a Christian nation. And so what happens with uh, these people who develop this kind of patriotic zeal, uh, you'll find a lot of these ministries that will have, you know, the Bible in one hand and the American flag in the other as though they are, you know, equally important uh, and that uh, that one represents the other, supposedly. And this leads to, I mean, I remember years ago being in a church where uh, in the middle of the service, one of the elders got up, or one of the deacons, and he was uh, an older gentleman. He got up and, and he started to, to talk to the congregation, and he was hopping mad that day because somehow or other the American flag was not up on the altar. They're in the church. Wow, that's crazy. And he was furious. Well, I got, I got news for you two guys. Most churches that I know of have an American flag on the on the podium. I bet God's real happy well, with that. Well, the overwhelming majority of them. I'd really? say most of them would probably have an American flag and then a the, the, the quote, Christian flag up on both sides. But that's a, uh, right. that is a regular feature. What is the Christian flag? You, you need to get out more. Mr. Bonick. I guess so. You could explain that, Chris. I'm sure you probably have the history of how that came about, but it's a it's a flag with a cross on it and stuff. But I mean, if you go to Bible school, at Bible school, children war. learn the they say the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States in their opening assembly. They all turn. They pledge allegiance to the flag. Uh, many uh, meetings, Christian meetings that are held, you know, in churches, even during a church service, will pledge allegiance to the Christian flag. Um, there are people. I, I must be like totally living under a log. Yeah, you're a little people different. That actually, do pledges of allegiance in their church service? Yes, yes. Uh, he's not uh, making that up, is he, Chris? Well, I've seen it. Uh, I were. I was at. I'm not going to say where I was, but I, I know there were. There was at least one Christian uh, Bible conference that I attended years ago, where I was quite surprised that at the beginning of it there was an opening word of prayer. And then everybody stood up and, and turned toward the flag and, and said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And I was kind of looking Whoa. around the room, you know, because these were otherwise very discerning Whoa. believers normally. Well, I don't, I don't mean to get sidetracked, but it's important to put a context for what we're going to talk about in this interview. I grew up in a very traditional evangelical background. I think about what traditionals people tend to think of. Uh, and it was always a fixture. Uh, on on the podium was the American flag. Frequently, whenever there was reason, uh, you would have a pledge of allegiance to the flag. Things like this that went on very normally. Uh, not only Bible school was it done all the time, but Fourth of July, uh, you would always have special dedicated services where people would actually go to church in their military uniforms. They would bring in. They'd have a color guard come in and bring the flag. We'd have uh, you know national anthem. Have different kind of things like that that were done. Uh, so it was very much a part of the church culture uh, in the environment that I came from. I don't know about you two gentlemen. I know you you, you sort of were in, engaged for a large part of your life in a different part of the country, but for the part of the country I was from, it was a major part of it. Yeah, well, but, I mean, it's one thing to be patriotic. It's another thing to be reciting a Pledge of Allegiance during a during something that's supposed to be dedicated unto God. 
Right. Well, well just, just imagine, yeah. imagine going back 2,000 years and, and the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, visiting the church in Rome and, uh, you know, uh, opening uh, maybe a, a fellowship gathering with a word of prayer and then standing up and, and compelling everybody to put their hand on their heart, face <laughs> the flag of Rome and, and to say, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United Roman Empire, et cetera, and so on. Uh, you know, because Paul did make make a point that he was uh, a freeborn citizen of Rome. He makes reference to that at one point in the book of Acts. Uh, but can you imagine him compelling other believers to stand up and say some pledge of allegiance to the, you know, the, the flag of the Roman Empire? It, it's just, it's almost inconceivable that he would have done such a thing. Uh, or that any of the apostles would have been engaged in that kind of thing. Well, I want to bring um, this yeah. up, keep in mind, because for our listeners out there who grew up in uh, an evangelical upbringing in this part of the country or you know in middle America, it was an automatic fixture. And if now you look at your large parachurch ministries, the line is clearly blurred, uh, and I, I think you would agree with me, uh, Brother Chris, uh, that Americanism... And uh, the gospel message are, are intertwined, where you, you always have flags waving. You have, uh, you know, saying God bless the USA. At the same time, we're talking about, uh, you know, the mission of the church and the mission of God's people and things like this. So um, even today, outside of the church in larger ministries, that's always the case. And if any kind of rallies that you have, any kind of, and I'm talking about Christian rallies, not ones that are intended politically. But large Christian rallies and things like this, this is a common kind of thing. And, and, and I can tell you, just as a preamble, uh, the, the way I was raised, we used to hear whispers that were there were people that were on the fringe of people who called themselves Christians, like Jehovah's Witness, for example, that would not say a pledge of allegiance to the flag. And we thought that was the most extreme cultish kind of thing, that they wouldn't do these kind of things. So... In, in the culture of the race, and this has been a multi-generational kind of thing. It was a culture that came out of World War II and goes way beyond it. And like you say, it's something that seems to be ingrained since the early days of our country. Um, so that's why this is something that really sort of touches deep into the psyche of, uh, of Christians today. And uh, particularly ones that come from, you know, the part of the country where I'm from and why I think it's so important. Uh, anything else you want to add on that, uh, on patriotic Christianity? Do you feel like you've, you've in, in essence, to well, I it. want to make I want to make one point on this whole issue because I don't want people to get the wrong impression. A lot of times, whenever these discussions begin, people will say, "Are, are you trying to say there were there weren't any Christians here at the beginning?" And that's just not the case. I, you know, in in my chapter, I make the point that you know, if we're talking about the Puritan pilgrims who came over, you know, on the Mayflower, uh, sixteen twenty and thereabout, uh, and William Bradford and the, and the Plymouth Plantation. It's very clear that these people were Bible-believing Christians for the most part. They had exceptions, obviously. Uh, and the, the early American settlers that came in, you know, and who founded Harvard University in 1636 and so on, these were Bible-believing Christians, and they openly made that profession. You know, the, the declaration of Harvard was that the, the purpose of Harvard University was that every student would come to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Uh, their motto used to be truth for Christ and the church. There was no ambiguity or no vagary. You know, they weren't talking about higher power or providence or any of this kind of stuff. They openly stated that their cause was the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. 
uh, and knowing God, according to the Bible. Uh, they didn't make any bones about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the American Revolution now happens 150 years later, or thereabout. And a lot happened in the country, you know, in a century and a half. Right. And the American, the American revolutionaries now, your Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Paine, John Adams, these guys, and their philosophies and ideas were not at all about promoting the Bible or uh, biblical Christianity or, and, and certainly hadn't, they, the farthest thing from their mind was establishing a Christian nation. Quite the contrary. Uh, if you read their writings, and this is really what I try to put forth briefly in this chapter, and I'm, you know, I'm working on a, a more detailed version of it, uh, in a, in a DVD format, uh, so that people can, you know, have, uh, greater access to this information and use it for study and discussion and so on. But uh, I hope they're not uh, flammable. They're, they're not flammable, are they? Because I'm sure there's going to be large stacks of them yeah. in big fiery pyres. You better predict yeah. if you're putting out like maybe pictures of yourself as a promotional tool. You want to make them fireproof. Yeah, I'm yeah. predicting a Dullum 451. Perhaps chiseled in stone or something. Yeah. Because once this thing is distilled down to a DVD. Uh, focusing on this kind of information, you're going to have a lot of people rolling up their sleeves uh, on this one, and you know that's what the prophets did. So, so be it. Well, the thing, the thing that the thing that I try to do with this, and I know I'm going to just keep doing it, is just to document who these guys were from the words of their own mouths, and to go to you know uh, resources like the Library of Congress, Jefferson's Papers the letters of John Adams, and so on. It's very clear once you see what they wrote and the things that they had to say. Um, and But but the problem is is that uh, when you have people like David Barton and others who are trying to promote the idea that these men were fighting for some kind of Christian you know, nation and this kind of thing, people don't realize that many of the quotes that Barton is giving them uh, are really taken out of the full context of who that person was mm-hmm. uh, right. and what they were really representing. I, I often mm-hmm. make the comparison. It would be like if you if you were 200 years in the future and somebody were showing you video clips of Barack Obama, you know, where Barack Obama says, "I'm a Christian," you know, and I've been going to a Christian church for 20 years, mm-hmm. and then they just play that clip really quick and they say, "Well, there, see." Right. Barack Obama was a Christian man. It's proof, you know. Or, or if they had right. Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton standing in a church, and she says, "This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it." Uh, that clip they showed over right. and over again during the right. campaign. And they say, "Well, look, Hillary Clinton was a Christian woman. Uh, why would right. she be quoting the Bible in a church unless she were a Christian?" Well, it's so obvious. Now, people, two hundred years in the future who didn't know anything else about Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, uh, could be led to believe that they were Christians. But Bible believers in our day, who are more, you know, familiar with the details of who these people are, you know, we're not, we don't hold that view of them, Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking. Well, and the same is, I was just going to say, the same is true of the American revolutionaries. The, the discerning uh, Christians from that era did not believe 
that they were Christians. They generally believed and accepted that the revolutionaries were infidels. Uh, and there's even a quote to that effect that uh, uh, that I include in the chapter. Well, I want to talk about some details of that, but I just want to go on the record with our Futurian listeners and say this, this was a hard teaching for me, sort of a bitter pill to read. But I have to say, having looked at it objectively, I think you do a slam dunk in being able to prove this. I think it's overwhelming. Uh, if our listeners get this book and uh, look through your methodical, and we'll talk about some of them here on the show, but look at words out of their own mouths, they make it explicit. These are not ambiguous gray areas. They make it very clear. Uh, I'm not a Christian, but I like pretending to be one. Uh, it's 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 a very very clear thing, and what it also says the example that you used, which were very good about, you know what what historians in the future might see about the politicians today. It, this also shines a mirror into our own discernment as an American Christian culture, because we look at certain people right now, and we so desperately want a Christian hero. We want a Christian celebrity hero here, and we desperately want to, to pin these kind of virtues on them and don't want to look further. Otherwise, we'd be very disappointed to find out how politicians normally do. And what we find out of these founding fathers is if you documented, you know, they, they, they had certain noble attributes. They probably were very brave in certain respects, but they were still politicians, and they knew how to play people, and they know how to say one thing for the public and be something else you know, with their own people, and things have not changed. And that's a message that I believe Christians today need to be aware of when they look look up to certain people, institutions, and groups. And that's a message for me, too, uh, to, to actually really know what's said behind the scenes rather than just the, the lip service that they give, you know, in the public forum itself. Uh, <clears throat> the This is something that you talked about a little bit in Riddles and Stone, which is another thing that every every listener should get a copy of Riddles and Stone, your DVD, and the whole series. But uh, you, you mentioned that uh, about the Founding Fathers. What, why do you think the Founding Fathers, if they were, quote, Christian in their beliefs, installed so many pagan images in our capitals' buildings and their monuments and symbols, yet refrained from any Christian imagery? I know you've talked about that, but that is a good inductive question to ask about the Christianity of these leaders if they basically naturally gravitate toward pagan symbology for the virtues that they believe, correct? Oh yeah, I mean that's the that's really the the obvious question. You go through Washington D.C. and you see all of these carvings and uh, statues of uh, pagan Greco-Roman Greek god and goddess type figures um, that are you, you know the special emphasis on the on the goddesses. Uh, and then zodiacs are all over the city, uh, and then you've got these strange supernatural creatures that are carved on the inside of the Library of Congress, um, and so on. And, and and that's the whole architecture of Washington D.C. It's based on you know Greco-Roman, uh, with a little bit of Egyptian thrown in with a Washington monument that was designed to be as an Egyptian obelisk, uh, and so on. And you and you ask the question: Did Christians design all of this uh, because they wanted to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ in 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 the capital city of the Christian nation that they established? I mean, you know, uh, in the Bible, 
Israel is continually referred to as a household, you know, the household right. of Israel, all the house of Israel and so on. Okay, so now a church is a house, right? Imagine going into a church and seeing up on the altar a big statue of Zeus, okay, and then maybe Neptune, all right, coming up out of the water on the other side, and then some naked water nymphs beside him as is out in front of the Library of Congress, and and somebody tells you that this is a church dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you see all that you see like Europa riding a bull painted mm-hmm. on one wall, you know, and then you've got Athena with uh, the serpent coiled up next to her, uh, like they have inside the Senate building and so on, all around the church here, and you're told that this is a church uh, that teaches biblical values and is is here to teach you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, what would you think? Uh, you'd think the world had gone upside down. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's not appropriate for Christians to have that kind of imagery inside a church, uh, why would it be deemed appropriate to set up those kind of images uh, in in the capital city of what is supposed to be a Christian nation? It just mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Or, or, or at least and, be asking hard questions like, why are we choosing these Examples to put up here. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom Wide-Eyed Bionic. Yeah, you, you seem to be taken aback a little bit when I mentioned the kind of churches that were in the communities I knew growing up. And I never mean, really I knew any different. Yeah. Although I had my own questions about why were we putting patriotism on par with what we're doing in church. But uh, yeah, that, any church I've been around growing up, and I'm not talking about right now, but mm-hmm. I'm just talking about growing up historically, mm-hmm. that was just a given. You know, wow. along with the teaching of the Bible and God's Word. And I always wondered, it was sort of curious, why are we making such a big deal about the American flag and the church? But I tell you what, if you wanted to cause fighting, you questioned taking that down. That would have been sure. fighting words. Well, it's funny you mention that. And today, today that's still true. Wow. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll get tons of comments calling me an ecumenicalist and stuff. But or worse. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say that's just a very subtle form of some type of idol worship. You know, well, I, go, I, I can't dispute that. Well, and and yeah. you know, I say that I say that because I've been to other church services where they've been. Uh, one church is a very you know sort of a messianic thing, and they had yeah. they had a uh, uh, an Israeli flag up there, and I looked at that and said that is idol worship. And I yeah, and same I, thing I, goes there too. And I told the I I kind of told the pastor that, and they got you know of course very offended. And, really, know, and really, stuff. yeah. See, you were a future quake guy ahead of your time. The groundwork was being laid of asking the questions. Like, yeah, I mean, I I was uh, pretty polite about it. Right. But like, you know, it it didn't yeah. matter. I was her- heretic yeah. who needed not to come back to that church. Yeah. Quote I, unquote. I asked the same question as a young person in front of about six or seven pastors about whether they were scripturally applying gifts right in front of the congregation one time too. So I know what that's like. Wow. High yeah. five, man. <laughs> well, Marv, won't you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us here at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. 
Okay, we've, we're in enough trouble. But this, this interview this week ought to cause enough, you know, food That's for fine. thought at That's least. Fine. Come Throw back tomatoes t- at Tom. Let's come on. Come back tomorrow uh, and for the next segment. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I, of course, am Tom Flabbergasted Bionic. Oh, that's an interesting middle name. Yes. For an interesting topic this week. We're back mm-hmm. for our second installment of our interview with Chris Pinto, the founder of Adullam Films, uh, a Christian documentary filmmaker and author of the uh, chapter called The Church and Secret Societies. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of the book, it's now available. In fact, at the front of futurequake.com, you can get it. It's called How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. Mm-hmm. We're talking with him this week about the true, quote, true faith of the Founding Fathers and the roots and premises of patriotic Christianity. Wow. Which, uh, you know, that's fighting words for people in the Christian church. Well, I mean, you know, so is most things that are truthful. Yeah. You know. But it's hard to dispute with Chris Pinto about the fact about our patriotism. People sure. merge on this, the um, kingdom of heaven. I would say that I would say that, you know, I totally agree with everything he said the first third of this two thirds, three thirds of this interview up until the very four thirds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well we'll 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 cross that bridge when we come to yep. it. Uh let's cross this next segment with Chris Pinto and then we'll be right back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. If I could play a devil's advocate here for a minute. Uh, th- there would be some who would say, and I think they've even done this in print, that, oh, this is just being too fuddy-duddy. you, you got to understand the classic teaching of that era. Everybody learned the classics. The, the, these stories out of mythology were classic archetypes for people to represent in general, you know, trends of bravery or loyalty or skill, and that these people just typified in literature that everybody understood, even, you know, iconic representations of these characters themselves. Uh, and that's all it was. It was just an innocent, uh, iconic representation of these of these attributes. But I would think the question would be that there are certainly biblical characters who also represent these attributes as well, too. And it just seems ironic that, that they're conspicuously missing. If you were trying to have a, a broad-based culture that was using these in a non-religious context, uh, the fact that they're omitted in only other pagan symbols, correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that the whole classical argument, that's an argument used by David Bart, and he, he argues that the founders were trained in, in classical literature and this kind of thing, and that that's why they chose these Greek and Roman uh, images. But biblically, uh, the Bible says that these gods and goddesses of the ancient Greek and Roman world, that these are, are demonic powers and principalities. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, I tell you that the sacrifice which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I would not that you have fellowship with demons. Uh, He makes that very clear. Furthermore, William Bradford, who came over on board the Mayflower, uh, I mean, he had this kind of knowledge. He makes reference in his writings, William Bradford does, uh, to a neighboring colony that sets up this maypole, right, uh, shortly after the, the colony had gotten mm-hmm. up and going. And he he says they're drinking, getting drunk with the Indian women and dancing around this maypole. And he says it's as though they've a new revived 
the uh, strange orgies of the uh, Bacchanalia, right. those who worship Bacchus in the ancient world. Well, it's obvious that Bradford had training in you know uh, who Bacchus was and what the ceremonies were of the pagans in ancient Greece and Rome and so on. Uh, but he clearly understood that th- this is anti-Christian, that this is contrary to God. These are all the gods and goddesses that are condemned by Yahweh throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. These are the gods to whom he says, you say to the gods who have not made this heaven and this earth, they will perish. Uh, okay, so uh, clearly the God of the Bible condemns all of these powers and principalities as being, uh, you know, false gods, usurper gods, uh, demons that are seducing the souls of men uh, to drag them into hell, ultimately. Well, l- let me just take uh, what, what I think you're saying and, and use a for instance. If Paul were transported to our time in our place, and he was dropped into Washington, D.C. right now, you gave the example of the church, but if he walked around Washington, D.C., he would assume that he was still in pagan Rome. Because all the architecture, everything else would be almost identical to what he saw in pagan Rome, correct? Oh, yeah. And he, he, would, he wouldn't say, oh, wherever I am, it must have converted over to Christianity as evidenced by what I see around me here. No, no. He would, he would uh, I think he would come close to saying that, you know, as when he went to Athens, he said he, he saw that the city was wholly given over to idolatry. Uh, mm-hmm. that's what I think, uh, you know, an apostle Paul would see if he went through Washington, D.C., because yeah. there's nothing but idols carved up in the tympanums. They're carved in front of all the buildings. Their faces are staring out at you all over the place. Uh, they're, they're idols, you know. Right. Uh, people aren't necessarily going and worshiping them. That's one of the arguments. They'll say, oh, well, I don't see anybody bowing down and worshiping them and, and whatnot. And I understand that, but uh, but again, the the issue, the the point is, uh, going back to the founders of the American Revolution, if they were trying to found a Christian nation, why would they have set all this stuff up? Right. You know. And there was a uh, lot of treasure, they, a lot of treasure spent paying for all that. The Bible says, "Where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let, and let's, they set in motion that just. They set in motion the design for Washington, D.C. Jefferson, George Washington, Pierre L'Enfant, and others said, you know, they had it all laid out uh, uh, in their generation. Now, they didn't see the completion of it, but uh, they they had the whole, you know, concept and design uh, uh, for the city, and that's what they envisioned for it. They they Mm -hmm. weren't envisioning some kind of uh, uh, Christian you know, icon of a of a U.S. capital, not right. at all. Which is consistent with their writings that we're going to talk about. And I want our listeners to uh, to take what you've just said as Exhibit A, uh, challenging this idea of America being a Christian nation, to look merely at the architecture of the work of their hands, what they purposely intended and constructed to represent us, is one example of that. And go to Riddles and Stone, uh, get that DVD, uh, to be able to study more about this. Now let's talk about some individuals. Can you tell us a little bit about Thomas Paine, who's one of the most famous people regarding our founding fathers and the American Revolution? Tell us a little bit about uh, his his nature, his beliefs, and why it's important in this discussion. 
Well, I think Thomas Paine can, uh, continues to be important, especially now when on uh, Fox News you've got uh, Glenn Beck that continually makes reference to Thomas Paine. <clears throat> He's even published a new book here called Glenn Beck's Common Sense. And he's, you know, trying to employ the principles of pain in, you know, modern times and so on. Uh, but Paine wrote the pamphlet, Common Sense, uh, that was uh, published. He, had, he was brought over by Benjamin Franklin from England. He was in the country for less than a year, and he writes Common Sense, which was a pamphlet, and it ends up being published in like, you know, half a million copies were uh, sold and spread all over the colonies. And it, uh, it, 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 it was said by Paine and the other revolutionaries that that was the pamphlet that stirred the American colonies to ultimately rebel against England and, and fight the American Revolution, uh, that it was Paine's writings. Uh, and he's got that famous line, you know, these are the times that try men's souls and so on. Uh, but he wrote Common Sense. And then he wrote a, a series of pamphlets called The Crisis, The Crisis Series. And George Washington at one point gets, you know, a bunch of these, and he has them read aloud to his troops. Uh, Paine was very involved with the revolutionaries. He was very close to George Washington, very close to Thomas Jefferson, uh, uh, corresponded with uh, Jefferson years and years after the American Revolution. Uh, in fact, if you read Jefferson's writings and Paine's writings, uh, they parallel one another. Uh, so uh, Paine is the pamphleteer for the American Revolution. It's, it's, uh, it's even said on his tombstone, without the pen of Paine, the sword of Washington would have been in vain. You know, and that history is to ascribe the American Revolution to Thomas Paine. Uh, Paine was the first to use the phrase, the United States of America. That comes from him. Paine called for the Declaration of Independence. He wrote that in common sense. And then, you know, Congress or, or the Continental Congress decides to draft the Declaration of Independence uh, shortly thereafter. So uh, uh, he was very, very influential. But he was, you know, I call Paine the, the Jeremiah Wright of the American Revolution. Mm. It's kind of like when Barack Obama was running for president. Here you got this nice, articulate guy who's running. And then these video clips come out of Jeremiah Wright jumping up and down and yelling and screaming and saying, God, D-A-M-N, America, and so on. And uh, and then everybody finds out that Obama has been going to his church for 20 years. And they say, oh, my goodness, are these the views of Barack Obama? Is this what he believes? And that's kind of what happened with Paine. Uh, Paine was the chief writer for the American Revolution. He's very close to, you know, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, all these guys. And then after the Revolution, he writes his book, The Age of Reason. Okay? And in The Age of Reason, he's exalting the pagan concept of reason, you know, man's human reason, really against the Bible. And he's denouncing the Bible, uh, saying, you know, things like, you know, that it's, that it's a, a, a disgusting book, you know, in very, you know, derogatory language, saying it's, it's so full of filth that he will not dishonor his God by associating him with that book, you right. know, meaning right. the Bible. Uh, and he's saying that, you know, you know, what is it that the New Testament teaches us? 
that the Almighty committed debauchery with a young, you know, a woman betrothed to be married, and and belief in this debauchery is called faith. Okay, he's mocking mm-hmm. the whole idea of a virgin birth. Uh, he says, you know, I don't believe in any, you know, the creed of any church. My own mind is my church. Okay, on and on and on. And, but he totally denounces Christianity. He makes reference to, he says specifically, uh, it is the fable of, it is against the fable of Jesus Christ, which I contend. Right? He's, he's calling the whole gospel account a fable, a fairy tale. Uh, and, uh, and he, he just goes on and on and on, totally denounces Christianity. Right. And so what happens is, uh, you know, he he's one of the most famous men in America. Everybody's reading this book. And America at that time was still very Christian. You know, the, the average mm-hmm. citizen was raised up going to church, and most people were Christians. And so at that point, everybody started, you know, my impression from reading the histories of it was everybody was just shocked. And they started looking at the other revolutionaries and going, wait a second. What do these guys believe? You know, they were so close to pain that they hold the same views that he does. Uh, and then, of course, uh, pain was kind of shunned uh, from that point onward. And he had a continual barrage of people. And this really testifies to the Christian nature of the culture at that time. He had a continual barrage of people that came to his home, you know, and repeatedly told him that he needed to repent and believe in Jesus Christ or he was going to die and go to hell. And, they t- and I, you know, if you get the book uh, Six yeah. Historic Americans by John Remsburg, uh, Remsburg, who was an atheist, is writing about the, just the constant flood. You know, the doctor would come over mm-hmm. and, you know, examine pain and tell him while he's examining, you know, if you don't confess Christ, you'll be damned. You know, right. an old woman would show up out of the blue <laughs> saying that God had sent her to tell him that if she, he doesn't confess Christ, you know, he'll be damned and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, on and on and on and on and on. But he continually, you know, with his, you know, final days, uh, rejected the gospel. In fact, he was so uh, anti-Christ uh, and he was so concerned that somebody, that some uh, professing Christian would come over and sit with him, okay, while he was, you know, in his declining days yeah. as he was dying. He was so concerned that somebody was going to come sit with him, talk to him for five or ten minutes, and then get up and go out and tell everybody that he had recanted, right? okay, and decided to, you know, make a confession of faith or something, that he insisted on having witnesses with him mm-hmm. at all times, people sitting in the room with him so that they could testify that he held fast to his unbelief and his rejection of Christianity with his last breath. Mm-hmm. And uh, Remsburg records how there were over 20 witnesses in the room mm-hmm. with him when he died, and they all confirmed that he, he, he went to his death rejecting Christianity. Let, let me just summarize by saying this is Exhibit B, I guess you could say, is that you have some of the founding fathers, and he is revered today. Thomas Paine is considered, like you said, the heart and soul of the movement of the rebellion that led to the revolution. Uh, his writings have lived on forever, but uh, Americans, and particularly Christians, have somehow forgotten, sloughed off 
uh, his his staunch stand against Christianity. So we have some segment of these people we put up on a pedestal that are just avowed atheist, and have made it very clear. And that that is one way in which they are spirit of Antichrist when they're when they're that clear. But in terms of a general sense of understanding that they had, the founding fathers of that era, can you explain about what the founding fathers said? They thought about the religious value of human reasoning versus that of supernatural miracles or revelation from God. Um, you know, as, as we understand it from the Bible, what what did they see of the value of one versus the other? Well, that's the whole key, that point, the idea of reason. Uh, that's what's behind Payne's book, The Age of Reason. And we can um, thank him because we wouldn't maybe have not had the Georgia Guidestones one day without him. Yeah. <laughs> Which that's on just... the Georgia Guidestones, you know, it says, you know, let these be Guidestones to an Age of Reason, uh, referencing Payne's book. Uh, no, the idea of reason is was a, a whole philosophy uh, that had, uh, well, it, it goes back centuries and centuries. If you read the Geneva Bible, the 1599 uh, edition, they have foot, uh, at least one footnote that I know of that makes reference to how the pagans would uh, put the goddess of reason on a throne, okay? Right. Symbolizing that they worshipped or idolized reason. They put reason on the throne of, uh, you know, authority and so on. And this is what the uh, Freemasons and the revolutionaries did over in France when they had the French Revolution. They enthroned re- uh, reason, you know, as a goddess on a throne. Uh, and, and really, it's reason for them in place of Christianity. Because at the same time, they were trying to completely eradicate Christianity from France during this era. But now, wasn't and, this also the general consensus of our, the founding fathers that we know the, the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, the others, the, in yeah. their writings, I'm, I'm talking in a general consensus, that they, they, they so exalted human reasoning so high that they had a very low regard for what we call the supernatural aspects of the Christian faith. Uh, revelation directly from God, miracles, intervention by God into uh, nature. You know, you know, we, we hear deism and things like that mentioned, but they, they, they really lightly regard what we consider a critical part of our faith. And, and really almost looked at it as a philosophy or a concept that would be dovetailed into the supremacy of human reason. Yeah, but but I think the key to understanding how it affects the, the founding fathers is to know how many of them, like Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, uh, John Paul Jones, uh, Paine, uh, and, and so on, were all interacting with the revolutionaries over in France, and then they were coming back to America. Mm-hmm. And they even make reference to, like Franklin makes reference to when he's asked about Christianity, he says his views of Christianity and the Bible are in agreement with the Enlightenment thinkers over in France. Um, But anyway, uh, but they give the clearest picture by putting reason on a throne. But there's a quote from John Adams that I think is the clearest, where Adams says, he says, when philosophic reason is clear and certain, whether by intuition or necessary induction, he says no amount of revelation that is supported by miracles or prophecy can supersede it. 
And what he's saying is the classic example that they made reference to, Jefferson and Payne in particular, was the virgin birth. Okay? If you see a 16-year-old girl who's pregnant uh, and she tells you that she's a virgin, your powers of reason are going to tell you that she's just lying. Mm-hmm. You know, your intuition tells you uh, that, no, a virgin doesn't just get pregnant on her own. She had to have been with a man. So if uh, if then somebody says, no, no, this is revelation that was foretold in prophecy, it has was prophesied that a virgin would bear a child, and this was then confirmed by a miracle, an angel appeared to her, and, you know, it's a miracle of God that she got pregnant and so on, uh, they said, no, that just doesn't, that's not reasonable, okay? We know that uh, that, that just doesn't happen. So a reasonable person isn't going to believe that. That's superstition. That's a fable. That's a fairy tale that somebody mm-hmm. created. And our powers of reasoning uh, w- forbid us from believing that. And so they rejected the idea. The idea of reason is specifically against the supernatural claims of the Bible. Uh, And hence, when Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and he says, we esteem these truths, or we hold these truths, to be self-evident. What he's saying is, we hold these truths, these truths come from ourselves. They're not revelation that has been given to us by God. We reject that. We reject the idea that we're going to govern our lives based upon, you know, some revelation that's been confirmed by prophecies and miracles and this kind of thing. Uh, We're not going to fashion laws and rules and regulations for our society based on that. Our ideas come from our own selves, okay? Our truth comes from, as Paine says, my own mind is my church. That's my authority, okay? And that's what's behind those words in the Declaration of Independence, and so it's, it, is, it is literally a declaration that says we reject the Bible, we reject the idea of the authority of the Bible. Now, they would make reference to the Bible, and they would say that, like Paine says in the Age of Reason, he says, yes, there is truth in the Bible, you know, thou shall not kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and this kind of thing. But he says, you'll find these same things in every major culture in the world. Mm-hmm. And he says any person, who any reasonable person, could come to these conclusions on their own. They don't necessarily need the Bible uh, to confirm that for them. But yes, it's in the Bible, and you'll find it in the writings of Confucius, and you'll find it in ancient Greek philosophy, certainly. You know, Plato would not advocate murder or theft, etc., and so on. Uh, yeah, there, there are those universal truths that you can find in the Bible. And they would not have contended against those. It was, again, as Paine says, it is the fable of Jesus Christ, he says, against which I contend. Uh, so they, so when, when you find these references by them to the Bible, they, they could have put up the Ten Commandments uh, because they generally would have agreed with what's contained in the Ten Commandments. You see what I'm saying? But they didn't necessarily think. Jefferson even writes about the Ten Commandments and says that it's, you know, it's doubtful where they came from or that they were inspired by God 
And he says, we have every reason to, you know, uh, to question their point of origin and so on. So uh, but, they but, didn't. But it gives us a very good, warm, cuddly feeling as Christians that we're doing something Christian-esque because they refer to those kind of things. Right. Right. I mean, that, but but I think I think the wrong impression is is uh, my problem with it. My big problem with it is that we've got Paul warning us. Okay, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men shall be uh, lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And he warns that they will have a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that we would... I mean, did Jesus exalt the Pharisees right. because they had a form of godliness? And the Pharisees had... I mean, they, they were a prototype of that because um, when people had unclean spirits and other things that required the power of God, they'd say, well, why haven't the Pharisees helped you this? Why come the priest relieved you? And they had the outward appearance of it, but they didn't have the power of God to to address things in the spiritual realm. Yeah, and, and the Pharisees would have been against homosexuality. They would have been against fornication and adultery and so on. They would have been against all the things that the Christian conservatives are touting in our society today. They would have agreed. Uh, but Jesus doesn't show up and commend them for those things. He doesn't show up and, and you know hand them a thank you card because they took a strong stand against homosexuality. Uh, he doesn't do any of that with them. Uh, it's very, very interesting that he's he's still confronting them for their uh, hypocrisy, and and really I think he's uh, he's reproving them because they don't know the Lord. Mm. You know that it's uh, that it's the, the mm. weightier matters of the law, mercy and compassion, and so on, the things that really lead to that personal relationship with God. Uh, that they, they were rejecting, and uh, and that's the whole issue. I mean, it, it's. They're, they're rejecting the founders. We're rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, but exalting some of the rules and regulations uh, that he gave us in the Bible. Well, this, this uh, words that you just shared with us really echo a recent uh, sharing from Robert Hyde, one of our other uh, guests that drops in, saying the same thing about the Pharisee nature of American Christians today for the same reasons that you gave. It's very interesting. We're back at Future Quake here with Dr. Future. And Tom, no fan of uh, human reason bionic. <laughs> you banish human reason from your life? I'm out. Uh, truth is not knowable. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good. Mr. Reasonless. I'm not even going to There's speak no reason for you. not even going <clears> to <throat> speak in complete. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. There Same. we go. He's now into Dadaism. Uh, Thomas Paine didn't come out looking too good from this segment. Indeed uh, not. And you know, I probably wouldn't want to have the Thomas Paine Christian Study Center or anything like that. No. Well, you know, it's Bibli- funny. I, I, had biblical a, studies. I had a uh, I had a boss who gave me this book, uh, Thomas yeah. Paine, like, yeah. and I would read it while I was doing making making yeah. calls and stuff. Right. And it was none of this stuff. But this is all. This is Thomas Paine, not the yeah. stuff in the book. Well, that's what Future Quick's about: trying to uncover this stuff from people mm-hmm. who do the work. Mm-hmm. Somebody else who can uncover things for you is Merv, who can tell you how to contact as a Future Quick. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. 
Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Let's get out of here. Okay. Uh, we will resume this tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, never at a loss for middle names, Bionic. That's the word on the street, although the email keeps sending you more middle names. I, I, I get an email basket for you. Uh, I don't, never mind. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to well, go somewhere with that, but today, I'm just going to go better. Today we're going to cover our third installment of our interview this week with Chris Pinto, the founder of Adullam Films, a Christian documentary filmmaker, a good friend of our show, and the author of a chapter of a book called The Church and Secret Societies, from the book that's now available at futurequake.com called How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. And our topic this week is the, quote, true faith of the Founding Fathers and the Roots and Premises of Patriotic Christianity, which is a very controversial topic, and it gets more and more controversial as we go along in this show. Mm -hmm. uh, any quick words? We don't have much time. Let's just go. Okay, Chris Pinto, come share with us some more, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Related to this um, is... Another concept, a, a, a subtle shade or nuance uh, in their writing and their belief system, and that was this general nature and extent of what the Founding Fathers' Christian commitment truly was. And I think you've shed part of that just right now. But they, they really believed, and just want to make sure this is clear for our listeners, in Christian morality, but really didn't carry a whole lot for Christian doctrine. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, yeah. There's, in fact, there's a great quote from uh, the biographer of Thomas Paine. Uh, his name was Moncure D. Conway. And uh, he, he spent a lot of time detailing, you know, the writings and the history of Paine's life and so on. Anyway, he, in his uh, assessment of Paine at one point, you know, Paine, who said all of these horrible things against the Bible and against the Lord Jesus Christ and against Christians and so on, uh, and he says that uh, he says that Paine's negative comments against Christianity were always against the corruptions of it. He says, nevertheless, none of his words uh, affect the religion of the New Testament. Okay. And so you look mm. you look at those words and you go, huh? He's, he's denying the virgin birth. He's mocking the virgin birth. He's denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're saying none of this affects the religion of the New Testament? And so it's obvious that what... Uh, the Jeffersonian Bible. Yeah, he's, his idea of the religion of the New Testament or the religion of Christianity really has to do with a moral framework. It has to do with you know, behavioral righteousness, a, a code of conduct. Uh, you know, that's the issue that, that he's... Uh, because Paine was apparently... He he was like a self-righteous Pharisee. You, if you read between the lines, mm -hmm. he prides himself on doing good for his fellow man, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of the revolutionaries were that way. You have a quote from Washington 
when he's writing to the Masons. And he says the the purpose of Masonry is to seek the happiness of mankind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and to worship some Egyptian gods and. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> hey, hey, Chris, I, I want to skip forward a little bit because we have so much material. Uh, in your very brief chapter, there's so much I can ask you, and I know our time's moving on. So I'm going to skip forward to some other questions and come back to some material if we get a chance. Uh, one interesting thing that you brought out in your chapter uh, regards uh, something that sheds light on how they viewed our country via a document, uh, the Treaty of Tripoli. What, what kind of insights do we get regarding the the perceived nature at the time of America as a Christian nation from this document, the Treaty of Tripoli? Well, it's a well-known document that comes up in these discussions and debates. Uh, and Article 11 of the Treaty of Tripoli, which was signed under the presidency of John Adams. So you're talking about one of the original founders, second president of the United States, uh, John Adams, an original founder, inner working with all the guys, Washington, Jefferson, Payne, all of these guys knew Adams, certainly. And he's the president. And they set forth uh, the Treaty of Tripoli, which was a treaty to try and, I guess, work up some kind of peace agreement with the Muslims uh, over there. And uh, apparently, to appease the Muslims, there there's comments in there about how they're not necessarily against Muslims and so on. And at one point in Article 11, they come right out and say uh, that the United States of America was in no sense founded as a Christian nation. And they're saying it, of course, in the sense that, well, we're not a Christian nation, so we're not by nature against Muslims, because that was the perception, you know, that if you were a Christian, you were anti-Muslim. But why would anybody say that? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really didn't need to be a part of the treaty. If you read the treaty, they don't really need that to be in there. Um, and yet it is in there. And apparently it was read aloud on the Senate floor, and everybody unanimously agreed to it. You don't have any, mm-hmm. uh, at least from the histories that I've read of it, if there's some other history of it, I'm not aware of it, but from what I've read of that treaty, uh, there are no nobody voiced any objection at the time, and you've got uh, pastors that were preaching. This is the forgotten, I think, important part of America's history that we need to rediscover as believers. That you had pastors and and researchers and Christians, guys like uh, uh, the Reverend Dr. Bird Wilson. He's probably the most prominent, uh, who were very diligent to go and try and find out what was the real faith of these founders and what was the American Revolution really about. And uh, there's one pastor in particular who preached a sermon where he says uh, that none of the leaders of that are, that are guiding the American government at that time, and he's preaching in like the 1820s or 30s, uh, that none of those were men who were making a profession of Christianity. Uh, and it was, uh, you have another quote even before that when Washington was stepping down when he came to the end of his second term as president. The Philadelphia clergy tried to compel him to make a public profession of Christianity or to state that he was not a Christian. They wanted him to profess one way or the other in his farewell address as president. And they were really hoping that he would confess his Christian faith 
for posterity's sake. Uh, but it was said by Dr. Uh, Ashbel Green, who was a congressional chaplain, he said that the reason they wanted this was to counteract the infidelity of Thomas Paine and the other revolutionaries. Okay, and that's where I get the idea, uh, the belief that generally they believe the revolutionaries were infidels. That, that these were not uh, men who were out there promoting biblical Christianity, not at all. Uh, they were promoting these esoteric Enlightenment ideas uh, that were based in infidelity. In fact, if you read the writings of H. Bratton Guinness, who comes along in the late 19th century, he was an English preacher who knew Spurgeon. Uh, anyway, Guinness openly attributes the revolutionary movements uh, to infidelity. He, he, he doesn't say that Christianity had anything to do with that. Um, but... Uh, but Washington refused on that occasion to make a profession of his faith as a believer. You document this in your... Yeah, I document that in the chapter. The reason I bring it up, I've read some quotes from those who defend Washington. They'll say that nobody ever questioned Washington's faith in his lifetime, this kind of thing. And that's so completely untrue. There's a lot of documentation that people repeatedly inquired as to what Washington believed. But the, the Philadelphia clergy and Dr. Asa Green, they all acknowledged that Washington never made a public uh, profession as Christian. Uh, he had never done that. And that was the reason they wanted that from him before he left office. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And he, he made a fact of dodging it. They would comment on how he could artfully dodge being cornered into those answers, right? Right. In fact, they refer to him as the sly old fox. You know, the old fox was too cunning for them. Jefferson writes in his letter, says the old fox was too cunning for them, and he, because they had given him a list of items that they wanted him to address. Okay, they did it that mm -hmm. way. And uh, Jefferson says in his diary, he says the old fox was too cunning for them. He he addressed every one of their issues and skipped over that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Which is uh, where many that. many of our politicians do today. They'll say something that almost sounds Christian, but it's very, very hard to nail them down specifically because um, I, I, I doubt it's for their own integrity's sake that they don't want to say something consistent. I think it's more likely they're going to alienate a part of the base, and so they just mm -hmm. want to be wishy-washy and never really say anything on what they believe. But but to say that he was clearly an out front a Christian, when you really look into the details, I, I think you've made a clear case there. You know, <clears throat> skipping forward a little bit further, uh, you, you spent a little bit of time talking about Freemasonry, the fact that most of the major founding fathers either were completely and overtly Freemasons or had large evidence to suggest that they had connections. Certainly George Washington, you got pictures of him wearing his apron, for example, his Masonic apron, and others that were involved <laughs> that were part of the... The, the uh, lodge over in, in, in Paris or in France and other places here. Um, but one of the things I think is important for people to keep in mind is that um, can you explain how Masons mentioned in their writings uh, then how they pretended to be Christian in order to avoid persecution? Yeah, they're the, the quote that uh, really seems to to be the clearest and uh, is from Manly P. Hall. Manly Hall, writing in the 20th century, of course, 
who's called, you know, Masonry's greatest philosopher by the Scottish Rite Journal and Masonic Magazine. Anyway, uh, Hall said, uh, he, he specifically said that the, the reason secret societies were secret is to avoid persecution because they were practicing these pagan ideas and rituals and so on, and they wanted to avoid being persecuted by the Inquisition or by the whatever established church had authority in their country. Uh, and so he says the pagan intellectuals reclothed their original ideas in a garment of Christian phraseology, and they bestowed the true secrets only upon those uh, who had been duly initiated and consigned to secrecy, meaning people initiated into their secret orders, and so on. Um, and that is really, I mean, that's what all of the evidence demonstrates. That's what all of the, you know, David Barton has a book called, uh, uh, the, what is it, The Truth About Freemasonry and the Founding Fathers, or Freemasonry and Founding Fathers, something like that. Anyway, uh, and he tries to suggest that American masonry during the time of Washington was somehow or other a Christian organization. <laughs> and of course, really, he, he hasn't. It's obvious if you read his, if you if you've done your homework and you read his book, it's obvious he hasn't done his homework into masonry, and he doesn't realize that masonry outwardly puts on whatever religion dominates whatever country they're in. Hmm. You know, the, these same guys could have gone to an Islamic country and they'd have been Muslims, um, and they would have made you know the proper profession so that they could fit into Muslim society and gain you know rank and power and influence and so on. Um, and maybe not all of them, but collectively, that's just what masonry does uh, wherever it goes. But uh, masonry, part of what I argue in the chapter is that masonry came from both England and Scotland to America. And it's very clear that in both of those countries, uh, masonry held the inner doctrine of the you know esoteric occult belief in many paths to God that has always been the doctrine, the inner doctrine of Freemasonry. Um, you find evidence of that in Scotland in Rosslyn Chapel, built back in 1492. Uh, and in, in Rosslyn Chapel, the, the thing it's known for, it was mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, but the thing it's known for is the whole cacophony of, you know, different religious icons that surround the Christian icons, you know. And so you've got the pagan green man next to the crucifixion of Christ. You know, and they're all carved into uh, the, the walls of Rosslyn Chapel. And well, it was built by Freemasons. Well, you know, let, and let, then over in England... <clears throat> go ahead. Let me see if I understand this correctly. Cutting to the chase, okay? Uh, and I know our listeners have read many other collateral documents, things like this. They've maybe seen your documentaries. If I understand where we're going with this, is that we have these founding fathers, people like Benjamin Franklin, which hopefully we'll have a little time to talk about him, others, uh, Washington, these other key players. They either were directly involved in a Freemason lodge, sometimes over in Europe and then coming back, or they were brought into it here. They have direct connections with people that are clearly in it. Certainly the people who laid out Washington, the city, were all clearly about Freemasons. So so they have this connection with these lodges. These lodges, their writings teach 
that they are teaching uh, and wanting to develop a democratic society of brothers that are all equal and free, counter to royalty, counter to the Roman Catholic Church. And because this is such a dangerous thought, they're underground, they they teach their things underground, they don't let different religions get in the way of coming up with this belief system. They will mask it in whatever the prevailing religion of the country they're in, whether it's Christianity or Islam or whatever. So So, so they're simmering or marinating in this belief system and this general idea to set this up. And suddenly these lodges pop up in America sometime before the Revolution. All of the key figures, the founding fathers that were key to the Revolution, are part of this. And then suddenly the same kind of language comes out, couched in the Christian words, talking about equality of all men and things like this, directly out of these lodges becomes the calling cry for the Revolution itself, while at the same time they sort of keep the troops alive by being somewhat vague in their Christianity and the fact that this is some kind of motive other than a motive that was derived within the lodges per se. Is that sort of a, a general kind of way of looking at what transpired? Yeah, I believe so. I believe so. That's it, and it's, uh, <laughs> again, it, it, it didn't necessarily happen uh, overnight. Right. But the evidence, you know, what we show in our in our series, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, is that the influence of these groups and their agenda, what they planned to do in America, really goes back to the beginning of the country and goes back to, you know, again, we talk about Sir Francis Bacon over in England. That's the other place that masonry comes from. Uh, in Scotland, you've got Rosalind Chapel and the Masons up there that are definitely you know, holding to these inner doctrines that you described, uh, but Bacon most certainly held to them, and he's considered the, you know, the first grand master of modern masonry. Uh, and uh, it's you know, his idea that America was to be the new Atlantis and so on. And so these groups are coming over, uh, and, and, and the Freemasons that are coming over and establishing lodges and, and uh, different societies and so on, uh, they would have certainly had in their inner uh, in their inner sanctuaries away from the the eyes of the rest of the country. They would have celebrated their their pagan ideas, but they would have outwardly professed Christianity. They would have used Christian phraseology. That's why they're using words like providence and you know divine law and all this other kind of stuff. Which means one thing to the Christian, it means something else to uh, the, the pagan Freemason. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. the same meaning. Now, like for example, uh, today how we've had leaders who talk about being leaders of our country, leaders of Christianity, but they'll sit under Reverend Wright and hear about something that's totally foreign to the gospel, or they'll be a member of Skull and Bones, uh, something very similar, akin, even maybe darker than Freemasonry, but yet still talk about their Christianity when prompted. Uh, to do so, so things really haven't oh, changed. Sure. Things haven't changed, have they? In that respect, no. I mean, and and that's you know that's I think a guy like President George W. Bush is the fruit of the uh, the the outward fakery of uh, of people who are involved in these secret societies, and you know then Bush is a member of the Bohemian Grove, and they're going up there and bowing down to their owl god. Okay, and taking part in these occult ceremonies and whatnot, and then with the Skull and Bones Society and this kind of thing, something that he never renounced. And then after all the fundamentals... Nor nor his uh, Democratic opponent at the time. Right, right. 
neither one of them. Right. And then all of these fundamentalists, because I watched it happen. I had members of my family who were swept away with this, <laughs> are rushing out to support Bush as the Christian president, supposedly. I remember watching a pastor at uh, another, you know, prophecy conference or, right. or Bible conference. I sit there and tremble with with emotion. He said when he sat there and he watched, he was on the stage when President Bush got up to speak, and he thought, oh, this Christian man is getting ready to talk. Oh, and he was just, you know, uh, weak with emotion over the whole thing. And uh, and then Bush gets on Good Morning America and uh, tells Charlie Gibson that he believes there are many routes to finding God. Mm-hmm. And he thinks Christianity and Islam are just two different ways to get there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, two did, different did, routes. Did this, min- did this minister mention anything about the the political advisor of the Bush family who came to him and said that he had better hurry up and have a conversion experience. Or he wasn't going to win. And bring the ministers in or he wasn't going to win and then suddenly brought them all in uh, for a big meeting afterwards to say that he'd changed or or the uh, the walk that he had down the beach with uh, Reverend Billy Graham. Who doesn't was, remember it. Yeah, who says he never remembers any kind of meeting going on. You wow. know, one, one thing I see different, uh, Chris, is that the, the politicians haven't changed. But what has changed is it seems like the Christians back in the, those old days were a lot more discerning, and they at least tried to make some attempt to hold their their uh, you know guys accountable. And at least a few of them were asking questions. You know the Chris Pintos of their day. Today we have less and less of those people. And you know I'll give them a little bit of a pass. They didn't have mass media. They didn't have you know they had newspapers. They took a long time to get story to get around. They didn't have the instantaneous news and virtually unlimited information we have at our fingertips with the Internet. Uh, so, so they may have a little excuse. We have no excuse, do we, not to have discernment and to actually find out what's, what's going on with the leaders in our country or even in our own religious movements. You know, part of the problem, uh, part of the problem, I think, is that believers are misinformed. There is a, there is a, a sort of a, a an, an idea, a belief that if somebody tells you they're a Christian, that you should just accept that face value and don't question it. Uh, and and there are a lot of I've even heard this on the news. Like one guy was defending Barack Obama, and he got all upset. You know, and he's he's saying you 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 know if somebody tells you they're a Christian, it's not for you to question whether or not they are, and this kind of thing. Uh, and that's just not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, "Beloved, believe not every spirit." But test the spirits whether or not they be from God, for there are many false prophets gone out into the world. Uh, the Bible says, prove all things. Uh, Jude is saying, you know, beloved, earnestly contend for the faith, uh, for there are certain men crept in unawares, ungodly men, uh, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, who turned the grace of our God uh, into licentiousness, and they deny our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Okay, he's talking about people creeping into the churches and corrupting the gospel. And he's saying contend against them. He's not saying we'll take them at face value and believe whatever they tell you. Or believe what Uh, we want to believe, project onto them what we want them to be. Right, right. Jesus even says, take heed that no man deceive you. And he says, many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And while that's interpreted a number of different ways... It's a warning not to be deceived by any man, uh, and that uh, that even those who come in the name of Christ 
can be deceivers and will be deceivers. You know, the Lord warns us about wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, they're, they're outwardly they're pretending to be sheep, but inwardly uh, they're ravening wolves and so on. That is a repeated theme that we're given throughout the New Testament. It's a prophetic warning, and I think all Christians who have any kind of discernment and study, you know, church history and uh, the history of these secret groups working in the churches uh, can can easily recognize that those warnings have certainly come to pass, and I think uh, I think those warnings need to be uh, uh, paid attention to as much today, probably more so today than ever before in church history. Well, let, let me ask you for a a little quick summary, um, and, and I know it's hard to do this quickly because I want to spend the rest of the last segment of our show focusing on the ramifications uh, of the information you've shared. Uh, can you give us a real quick, just in a few minutes, summary about some of the essential points about Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin that the listeners need to know um, that may still have some kind of uh, high-minded view of their spiritual condition and situation? Oh, sure. Uh, Jefferson, very quickly. I mean, Jefferson was a parallel of Thomas Paine. He, uh, you know, he, there's a quote where Jefferson talks about Jesus as being a man of illegitimate birth, okay, uh, who, who began life not having any pretensions toward divinity, but ended up believing that he was divine and ends up being gibbeted by the Roman law and this kind of thing. Uh, Jefferson very clearly did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God or that he was God manifest in the flesh and so on. Uh, his Jefferson Bible, uh, which I've heard defended by some people as though he was just trying to promote the morality of Jesus, uh, <laughs> wasn't anything but. If you read yeah. Jefferson's own letters, Jefferson describes in his letters what he was trying to do with his Jefferson Bible. And he specifically says that he thought the true sayings of Jesus were in the New Testament, but that they were surrounded with all of this rubbish. And he said that his task was to pull diamonds out of a dunghill. And the dunghill for Jefferson was things like the virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, the miracles that Jesus performed, uh, the entire book of Revelation. He said he thought the book of Revelation was the ravings of a maniac, uh, not worthy of any more attention or study than our own nightly dreams. He just thought it was nonsense um, and waved it off. Uh, and he said this about the New Testament and about the Old Testament. Uh, as, I, as I talked about earlier, there's a big, long quote where he's questioning even the Ten Commandments, you know, and their origin and so on. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, not pretending to be anything bionic. Well, you're very, very good at not being anything. I want to applaud you on that. Uh, I'm a zero. But we find out that the Masons and, and our founding fathers who were tied to them were used to masquerading. Mm-hmm. That was their main thing, was to be things they were not. Yep. And it looks like politicians have not lost that skill over time. Sure. Look Particularly at the, pretending to be Christians. Oh, I know. Look at the look at the little emblems. You know, they've got Hebrew writing on them, the Mason Hebrew right. writing, Talk Arabic writing. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and our political officials do the same. Someone who's not pretending is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We got to go. Serious as a heart attack, that Murph. Yeah. Don't have much time here. Come back for the last segment tomorrow. Till then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Controversiosity Bionic. That's a new word for me, as yeah. well as a new middle name. I'm not. But it fits with us, whatever it means. It's like gigantic, um, enormous, and controversy. You must be describing our show yeah. today, particularly our last and f- fourth and last installment with Chris Pinto, founder of Adullam Films, a Christian documentary filmmaker, good friend of ours, and author of the book chapter, The Church and Secret Societies from the book How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century, a book we highly recommend. It's available for sale at futurequake.com. And we're talking about the, quote, true faith of the founding fathers and the roots and premises of patriotic Christianity. And uh, we are crescendoing in intensity, and he puts his cards on the table today. Boom. Assemble seat belts today. Yep. Hope you've got airbags in. Yep. Hope you enjoy it. Well, in. We need to come back, and we'll have a quick word on it. But until then, here's Chris Pinto. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. So Jefferson was not a big fan of the Bible. There's even a quote when he's writing to uh, a member of his family who's in college, and he tells him to, you know, that when he's studying the New Testament and he's learning about this person called Jesus, he says, keep your reason firmly in hand. You know, he makes his appeal to reason. He says, you've got to keep your firm hold on reason. And make sure that reason governs, you know, whatever conclusions you come to about these things, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And you can see the, you know, the obvious influence of the Enlightenment thinking and and uh, you know, Paine's influence, uh, and so on. Well, hopefully, at least uh, Franklin lived lived an upright and in Christ honoring lifestyle. I hope. <laughs> now, Franklin, Franklin was probably uh, he might have been the worst of all of them. Uh, Franklin was, he was a very crafty guy. Franklin would not have come out and written a whole book, you know, denouncing the Bible. He was too smart for that kind of thing. But still, he was over in England. He was part of a group called the Hellfire Club, which we talk about in uh, Secret Mysteries Part 1. Uh, and I detail some of that information in the chapter on Franklin. And uh, the Hellfire Club was known for being an occult organization that, you know, would get drunk you know, uh, have strange prostitutes and women and have kind of occult ceremonies, uh, kind of sex orgies and this kind of thing. Uh, that's what they're, they're, you know, known for doing, just being mm-hmm. a very rakish, drunken bunch of noblemen who get together and debauch women and this kind of thing. But they were also said to partake in uh, occult ceremonies where they mocked Christianity. You know, a very anti-Christian mm-hmm. kind of bent, uh, and uh, really sort of based on they use the phrase uh, "do what you will" over the entrance to their hideaway, 
And at that point, they weren't quoting a Lester Crowley, who would come centuries <laughs> later. Right. But they were quoting the, the French priest, Francois Rabelais. And Rabelais wrote all of these sort of, you know, these allegories, these, these kind of fables where he's mocking the church and mocking Christianity and this kind of thing. Now, spe- so that- speaking of writing, this gentleman you're talking about, who was in, not just in regular debauchery, and he was known to be an incredible womanizer, all these things, but, but he actually did these ceremonies, like you say, mocking Christianity, but his handwriting was literally and figuratively all over all of our founding documents, right? He probably was one of the largest guiding hands of anyone in, in the totality of the founding documents of our country. Oh, yeah, Franklin is the only one, from what I've read, he's the only one of the founders who signed all three of the main documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Treaty of Paris. Treaty of Paris was the official treaty that ended the war with England, mm-hmm. um, and Franklin signed all of them. And he was a pivotal figure uh, when he was over in uh, uh, in France, um, and he was you know, working with... Really, he's the one who secured the support of the French king, Louis, and their right. financial support, and he's the reason why they sent Lafayette and the French troops and all this other kind of help from France uh, that helped turn the tide of the war. Um, and uh, he was he was kind of, you know, I, I see Franklin as, as the spy master of the American Revolution because he was totally into you know, intelligence gathering and, and secret activities and all this other kind of stuff. He was uh, involved in secret societies in America, in England, and in France, uh, the three uh, countries that were involved in the American Revolution. But these guys and, were all sort of a rat pack. They all were oh, yeah. ra- rationalists. They all played the game with the Christians, kept them engaged and involved, kept people at support. But in their own personal writings and letters to each other, they sort of winked at all of it and had a very, very cynical, rational view about things that they were doing. Certainly nothing from a spiritual standpoint. Right, and Franklin even, there, there's a dialogue. He admitted like a month or two before he died, somebody inquired to him about his faith, and he uh, openly stated that he that he did not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, and he said, you know, he, he, he'd never, he said, it's not something that I dogmatize on, to use his words, and he says that that he because he saw that his death was coming soon, he says he expected to 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 fig, to find out firsthand, you know, uh, without too much more trouble. In other words, when uh, I'll find out when I die, that was his yeah you know mm-hmm. parting uh, words on it. Yeah. Um, well, I want I want to I want to uh, come around the corner here around third base if you don't mind, Chris. I don't mean to rush this because there's just so much material I wanted to ask you about, but right. I th- I think. That was the easy information, okay? That was the easy information to take. Let's take the hard uh, uh, assessment of what you shared with us right now. You, you said something in, in your book that was very uh, provocative, well, amongst many things. But one of them that really stood out to me and got me to thinking, can you tell us what your position is, is what you feel like when these guys wrote the Bill of Rights, what their original purpose was and the rationale for its inclusion? The the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence or both? Well, you or could, specifically the Bill of Rights. You can say both, but I, I, I seem to recollect the Bill of Rights or these particular rights were enumerated right. basically to give license uh, that these right. guys suddenly would, well, I don't want to steal your thunder, 
You, you explain. Yeah, my, be- my belief is, and I, I, I call it a bold assertion in the chapter, and I base it on reading, really reading the letters between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams uh, and the, the, the comments that they made about, about the church and about clergy and about how people who would express an alternative opinion about Christianity or the Bible uh, would be, you know, uh, chastised or they would be outcasts and, and this kind of thing. And just how unreasonable it was that, that nobody could have a contrary opinion and this sort of thing. And on the face of it, that kind of sounds like, okay, well, you can be sympathetic toward that until you find out that their contrary opinion is, you know, that they think the book of Revelation is the ravings of a maniac and that Jesus is not really the son of God. Those are the contrary opinions uh, and, and whatnot. But the First Amendment, the idea of freedom of speech, I don't believe really had anything to do with giving people the freedom to preach the gospel. I believe that freedom of speech, the First Amendment, was developed because these guys wanted the right to denounce Christianity. They wanted the right to denounce the Bible, to tell you that the New Testament is rubbish, that the stories of Jesus are a fable, uh, that it's you know that it's all just a big fairy tale. In fact, Jefferson in his writings even said that he he hoped that the gospel would be done away with in the United States. He calls it a scaffolding, you know. And he says that hopefully this scaffolding will be done away in these United States and so on. Uh, and they wanted the freedom to say things like that without facing any kind of consequence. Okay. And as I, I pointed out in, in other discussions on this. The idea of freedom of speech is really not a biblical principle. Uh, a lot of the yeah, pastors and teachers going around promoting that as some kind of biblical principle. There's nothing in the Bible. God in the Old Testament in the law doesn't ever say, "Thou shalt not infringe the speech of any man." You know, if he shall say that uh, uh, God doesn't exist, or if he shall say that Moses is a false prophet, or if he shall deny the commandments. That shall thou allow. That is his right given by God. I mean, God never says anything like that. You know, God says things like, Thou shalt not speak evil against the ruler of thy people. There are limitations on speech. Uh, Jesus says, By your words you shall be justified. By your words you shall be condemned. The day will come when men will give an account for every idle word that they shall speak. They shall give account of it on the day of judgment. Uh, the unpardonable sin uh, is words that a man might speak against the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? Uh, you have Paul, in uh, when he's talking about being caught up into the third heaven, he says he uh, heard words spoken which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Okay? So you've got boundaries even in heaven on what people say. So the concept of freedom of speech... The reason I point these things out and the reason I think it's so vital for Christians to wake up and recognize this is because the Great Commission is to go into all the world and teach men to observe all things whatsoever Jesus commanded. Uh, Not all things whatsoever the American revolutionaries came up with. Mm -hmm. We're not sent into all the world to promote free speech and freedom of religion, which is a deception. I mean, God doesn't say that you can worship any god you want to worship. That's not a that's not a biblical principle. Can I can I uh, com- can I comment on this? Sure. 
because this is an, an interesting assertion you've made. It's sort of like a uh, a Molotov cocktail, <clears throat> you know, and it, it gets attention. And this is something that people you have to respond to. You have to respond in your thinking. And it really shook me to think about the fact that you may be right in essence that this was the motives or part of the motives of the founding fathers, that they actually um, wanted to use this as an opportunity to at least give license to them to do things that didn't have to be under the auspices of the church. But even if I accept that uh, to be true, and I, I think it's a fascinating concept that it may be true, that does not mean that it does not serve some useful purpose civilly at this point now. And I think one of the hard times, and this is something we could have an entire show over, in fact, a couple shows, is the fact of looking at guidance within the household of faith in which the kingdom of God, uh, which is a, a spiritual kingdom but one in which we're part of, in civil government itself, which which is amongst people who are yoked in Christ and those who are not yoked in Christ. And I see these particular commands, or excuse me, not commands, but laws, are to permit us to live by our own conscience, including Christians to be able to live by their conscience and not let others, for example, uh, the, the Pope in Rome would not be able to stop me as a Protestant from being able to do what I'm doing. And other countries at the time that, that were influenced by Rome uh, would have been more restricted. So, you know, you've put a good seed of doubt in my mind about what the origins and intent of these Bill of Rights are, but I'm still not so sure in a civil context if they don't serve some utility for us as long as we don't confuse the kingdom of God uh, and, and the, just the role of civil government to maintain law and order uh, here on the earth and, and, and hopefully not drift into a dominionist view that they're one and the same. No, I hear what you're saying. I, I think, uh, you know, it's why for me, I, I because we've just finished The Lamp in the Dark and I've spent the last few years really studying the, the reformers and, and the early church preceding the reformers and so on, and what they endured at the hands of uh, uh, at the hands of really corrupt government and papal authority and, and this kind of thing, you don't have them. I mean, these men who were being burned at the stake and buried alive and so on, uh, they weren't crying out about their human rights and this kind of thing. They just weren't. Mm-hmm. They understood, you know, like you know when Jesus is in Gethsemane and they come to arrest him. And Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts the ear off Malchus. And Jesus says, you know, uh, put your sword up again into its sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink of it? You know, in other words, that destiny which God has set forth for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is he not going to fulfill that destiny? With that in mind, what is the destiny uh, for Bible believers? What is, you know, what is mm-hmm. the cup? that God has given to us as saints. Uh, In the world ye shall have tribulation, the Bible says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Uh, And if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Okay? Uh, That if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, uh, for the Spirit and that of God rests upon you. Uh, When the apostles were beaten for preaching the gospel, they lifted their hands to heaven. They thanked God that they had been accounted worthy to suffer shame uh, for the Lord's sake. Well, okay, let, 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 me ask, let me ask this, Chris. If, um, if I see someone else, another Christian, who, who is being persecuted 
in a way that's unlawful. In other words, it's against the laws of our land, the authority of our land. And they're being persecuted in that way. Uh, do, do I have any kind of responsibility to come to their assistance against lawbreakers, per se, that are going against the authority of the land? Well, I think, you know, this is where I think the life of uh, the Apostle Paul is very instructive. There were times when Paul, certainly, I mean, when he's being bound, they're getting ready to beat him, and he says, you know, is it lawful uh, for you to, to, to bind and, uh, and whip one who is a Roman and uncondemned? He's making reference to his rights as a Roman citizen. I don't think that's, uh, obviously, I don't think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point when there was a plot and certain uh, uh, Jewish guys had taken an oath that they were not going to eat or drink until they killed Paul and, and they were waiting and lying in wait for him, you know, Paul sends uh, someone to get, you know, to inform, you know, the proper authorities so that they could protect him. Uh and I certainly don't see anything wrong with things like that. So I don't think it would be wrong for you to step up to the plate and try to defend a brother or sister who's being persecuted unlawfully, uh, you know, if, if they could be defended. But we, we know, you know, I, I think that, you know, Paul says right. the best, we should pray so that in as much as is possible, we can dwell peacefully with other men during our time here upon the earth. Right. Uh, but I think, I think the line is really crossed when what happens is when you say that the American Revolution was some kind of Christian revolution and you start trying to turn the founding fathers into Christians, well, they become the apostles, if you will. Yeah. They yeah. become the example. Sure. Now, their doctrine is the doctrine that you need to follow, okay? Not turn the other cheek. You know, if you get all these founding father quotes, I've I've said yeah. this uh, before. You get all these founding father quotes. Yeah, they might mention Jesus by name. They don't ever mention his teachings. They right. don't ever say things like "turn the other cheek" and you know, well, "do good to them that hate you" and "love your enemies." And, well, well, brother Chris, uh, that that's why I try to be careful in my example because you raise a very very good point. You see, the problem is is that we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom that we voluntarily became a part of. We accept its restrictions, restrictions on our rights. We act that way. And then also we have this strange town. There are also citizens here on earth. And, and I didn't pick an example of one where I'm defending my own personal rights because I may even voluntarily not even assert my own personal rights for the sake of the cause of Christ and for the sake to win a brother over. In other words, I, I may find that somehow Christ could be glorified by, by me turning the other cheek and somehow winning winning this person over to the Lord. But when I see rampant uh, uh, persecution of other people, uh, it seems like to me that's a different story, it, particularly if it's going directly against the law of the land and the authority that's established by just ne'er-do-wells, by people, even though they may even have a, a position in government, uh, but not in accordance with the law, but they're basically bullies that are terrorizing a group of people. Uh, and to see that the law, and as the Bible says, of course, in Romans 13, that these authorities are put in place to, to maintain peace, uh, you know, and that our laws are, are intended for that purpose itself. Uh, I, I certainly see, and I think you just alluded to this, that there is a big gulf between some of these very knotty issues that we're talking about right now 
in, in what I think you've established clearly, in that this whole idea about these founding fathers being these wonderful Christian men and the ideal that we need to, you know, hold on to the Shangri-La of what, what existed then, that is a total myth. And it's harmful to Christianity. And, and Christians today seems like they are the ones that are most gullible to embrace it. And I know I've certainly had my part of it. I can't speak for both of you, but I know I've certainly to some degree probably fallen privy in times past to it. So I, I, I think you've made that place so clear that we need to have clear-headed thinking about our role in the body of Christ and our citizenship in heaven versus just taking blatant patriotism uh, and accepting it wholeheartedly and not comparing it to what we're really committed as Christians. Some of these other matters we're talking about, I think there's something that the dialogue we're having right now needs to go on across the country by Christians in a very respectful tone amongst Christians and really start working these things out because it's going to be critically important in the days ahead, I believe. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree with me? That we're going to have to oh, have this stuff worked out in our mind. Yeah, maybe we should have another show on this sometime. Maybe we should, and and have some information out there to try to come to some understanding in a in a respectful atmosphere. Of what you know, thus saith the Lord, and uh, uh, because by not having these discussions, it's going to create great turmoil and, and difficulties for the body of Christ for not working this out and hopefully this will be a catalyst and I just want to thank you uh, Brother Chris uh, so much for your work it is a yeah. brave work uh, you do things that uh, you're not seeking men's applause even from <laughs> people in the church hold back. <laughs> certainly from people in the church yeah. you bravely just like the prophets of old you call it the way you see it uh, you don't say what would necessarily give us comfort or make us feel good, but what you feel like Scripture and your understanding says, and you make incredibly eloquent arguments for what they are. And it certainly enriched my life, and I know many of our listeners, and that's why your work is so popular. Uh, I, I know we're out of time, and you have another commitment coming up, and I want to be respectful. There's so much I want to ask you about this. But uh, I do understand you will be speaking at the last day's 2010 conference in Nashville, correct? Yes, yes. You, can you give us a hint on what you'll be speaking on, or is that a secret? Um, no, it's not a secret. I'm actually going to be giving, a, I think, a, an even more detailed presentation on this subject. Uh, that's going to be my subject for the uh, for the conference. Okay. So if people have effigies to burn, they'll probably need to do it outside the building, the Chris Pinto <laughs> effigies. <laughs> you know, one thing you can feel good about, Brother Chris, is that you would bring together lots of very diverse people on all the different subject matter you've done. They would all be united in burning effigies of you. Yeah, you would offend them all. <laughs> you bring together people, even you know people who are Christians in name. You've got uh, the powerful and all sorts of sides. You've got occultists. Uh, you know, uh, people just about every stripe have some reason to be offended by your work, and uh, that's part of the reason I really love you and appreciate you uh, for yeah, that. Yeah, that's positive. That puts you in the. You know, company of the prophets and stuff. Well, and, you, and you're a role model uh, in many ways. And I just want to tell our listeners, if this is the kind of reasoning, and if you caught the other shows with Chris Pinto, I know you've been blessed in many ways, you need to come to the conference, hear him speak, but you also need to get these materials. And, and this book, it's, it's much more eloquently laid, laid out than what I could do in primitive fashion here in this interview. Uh, but I appreciate you so much. I know things are very busy because your work has taken off so much and you've got so many projects you're working on. Uh, that you got to run and you got got another commitment here. Any last word that you have for us before you go or how they can get a hold of your documentaries? Um, well, they can always go to uh, adelumfilms.com um, uh, or they can call our toll-free number uh, 888-780-5049. 
and uh, uh, and maybe even get a copy of A Lamp in the Dark so they can see you guys on camera uh, and the, uh, the the brilliant uh, performance you guys put forth. Um, Keep talking. But, uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and get to see us persecute some people, too. Yeah. Get to see you persecute some. Get, get to see you violate some rights. That's right. Of, uh, <laughs> but no, that's you know that film right there, A Lamp in the Dark. Even though you know we're kind of joking a little bit about it, that's what really uh, just studying the sacrifice of the saints who have come before us uh, and what they endured and so on, and they endured it now not for the cause of you know their so-called liberty and this kind of thing, right. but for the cause of the gospel. You know, as Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and fight. Uh, the cross is given to a condemned man. Uh, it's the acknowledgement that we are dead to this world. You know, as Paul says, I am crucified unto the world, and the world is crucified unto me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really the example that uh, uh, that so many, you know, millions of saints in centuries past uh, have given us. Mm-hmm. And I think their memory and, you know, the faith that they have uh, that they earnestly contended for, uh, that's part of the reason why I wanted to make a lamp in the dark, mm-hmm. uh, was to, you know, spark a fire in the hearts and minds of uh, our brethren in this country and around the world uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to remember what, you know, what the saints have endured. We can see things getting darker and darker in this country. Right. Uh, we can see, you know, this new world order, this kingdom of Antichrist uh, emerging day by day on the world scene. And mm-hmm. prophecy tells us it's going to happen. Right. Uh, the only escape from this is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, it's, you know, nobody's going nobody's to be able to deliver anyone, temporally speaking, other than in the short run. Maybe you can save right. somebody for a day or a week or whatever, right. but uh, ultimately the only real salvation uh, is eternal in the mm. Lord Jesus Christ. Well, pa- Pastor Chris, I know, uh, or excuse me, Brother Chris, I know uh, our listeners have probably gathered that I always have this uh, hope that we may be granted a few more years like Hezekiah if we step forward and maybe a little bit more grace to have time to share the gospel or uh, at least a period maybe even like Josiah where there could be a revival uh, and we could have a time furthermore spreading the gospel. But there's coming a day, whether it's today or in the near future, when all that is behind us and it's time to suffer for our Lord. And nothing is going to change that. And I really recommend our listeners get your materials, uh, think about them, meditate over them, pray about it, and get your hearts ready and be encouraged by the testimony of the saints that you so clearly document. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, and we sure look forward to hearing the rest of your work, seeing you at the last day's conference, mm-hmm. and uh, hearing your new work coming out in the future, back here in Future Quake. All right, brothers. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Thanks again for mm-hmm. coming to see us. Bye-bye. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, of course, I'm here, Bionic. Well, what do you think about them apples? Tom? Well, I would have to dis- actually disagree with uh, his final premise. I certainly think his information is solid, but I would have to. Um, I just don't agree with the final finding. Well, I'm glad that we can exhaustively review it in the 30 seconds that we have. Yeah, and give it yeah. the full oh, well, attention it needs. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. That's all. I, that's about all I have. You know, as hopefully far as our listeners will. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we need to have a long, hard talk about the kingdom of God versus the secular kingdom of men. That might be a great topic and, for a new uh, show. Uh, I think we should do it because I, I just don't think government should be made out to be more than what it is. Mm-hmm. But someone who you can make out a lot about is Merv who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. 
Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We really got to go. Let's go. Come back for tomorrow's Tremors tomorrow. Till then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, kind of pumped up from a hard day's labor and a good interview, Bionic. Yes, yeah, been a hard day's night and week for you, hasn't it? It's been a wild one, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm still suffering a little bit from some kind of stuff. Got Ebola. Yeah, or something like that, yeah. 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 I hate the hemorrhaging. That's I know. the part I hate. We had to wrap you in I hate duct when that tape. happens, yeah. Don't worry, I had plenty of it from this afternoon. <clears throat> so, anyway, I'm still trying to get rid of it. Yep. Trying to take all of the artificial pharmaceutical substances that they make. <laughs> Hopefully they come over. <clears throat> Anything non-natural yeah. I'm trying to take, you know. Was this, overwhelm was this made in a plant? I don't want it. 30 or 40 vaccines. Yeah. You know. But anyway, we'll be okay. But, you know, it's Friday today. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? I, I probably have not asked you that before. If you might know what Friday would symbolize for Future Quake. Well, typically Friday symbolizes for Future Quake <clears throat> uh, the day where we sit around and, uh, you know, sort of expose Revelation 18 to the pop, unsuspecting yeah. populace. That may be true, but it's hard to write that all in one place. Uh, that's why we call it Tomorrow's Tremors or Today's Review of the Future's News. Very good. So how's that for succinct? That's I would go. I like mine better. Okay. Well, we'll see if we like your stories better. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're new to us, this is where we uh, go over on Friday at the end of a great interview that we had with Chris Pinto. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go over the news stories and things are going on with our own perspective. Uh, but any quick announcements? Uh, come to the Last Days Conference. Last-days.net. Yeah, that's where you can find some info. There's sign great... up and pre, pre-sign up. Yeah. So yeah. they know how many is coming. Pre-register. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good groups already signed up. Yeah, I think it's up to maybe 40 now. I can't remember. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's got Tom Bionic, Dr. Future, <clears throat> Chris Pinto speaking, uh, Chris White of Nowhere to Run, Lynn Marzulli. Uh, we've got uh, Russ Dizdar of Shadow of the Darkness, Guy Malone, uh, and Alien Resistance, and Joe Jordan. And Joe Jordan. Maybe we missed one. I think that's it. It's I think eight. that's it. It's I think close. it's eight. Okay. Yeah. It's an all-star Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll never find that many people stacked together. Hmm. Pray that the enemy didn't try to take us all out in one room at that one time. Yeah. Boom! It's like all the guys who know the secret to cook. Yep. <laughs> <coughs> Please excuse my voice. I'm very no, raspy. No, you're fine, man. Raspy Don't voice. Quit, quit apologizing. We, we just want to hear the information you have to say. Would you like to start off? I'll tell you what. I'll start with one, and then you can rest. Just a little bit. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll ponder. Do we want to go Enemy Belligerent <coughs> Interrogation Act, or do we want to Yeah, go? that's an important one. Okay. I mean, that's a foundational one to what we cover in our yeah. show. Um, this is via the Atlantic. Uh, 
the Enemy Belligerent Interrogation, Detention, and Prosecution Act of 2010. Why is the national security community treating the Enemy Belligerent Interrogation, Detention, and Prosecution Act of 2010 introduced by Senators John McCain and Joseph Lieberman on Thursday as a standard proposal as a simple response to the administration's choices in the aftermath of the Christmas Day bombing attempt, which we know now that was actually, uh, you know, the government, the CIA allowed. That's that's out in mainstream news now. Actually, Christmas Day bombing. That was the guy on the with the with the, with the thing bomb his on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, a close reading of the bill suggests it would allow the U.S. military to detain U.S. citizens without trial indefinitely in the U.S. based on suspected activity. Uh, and incidentally, you can go and read the bill online, and then read the summarized points uh, after the jump. Uh, let's see. According to the summary, the bill sets out a comprehensive policy for the detention, interrogation, and trial of suspected enemy belligerents who are believed to have engaged in hostilities against the United States by requiring these individuals to be held in military custody, interrogated for their intelligence value, and not providing, provided with a Miranda warning. Uh, incidentally, there is no distinction between U.S. persons, visa holders, or citizens, and non-U.S. persons. It would require these belligerents to be coded as high-value detainees to be held in military custody and interrogated for their intelligence value by a high-value detainee interrogation team established by the president. Interestingly enough, sidebar, uh, the, uh, the, the guidelines for uh, waterboarding people came out, and yeah. it's absolutely disgusting. You know, you put electrodes on them. To uh, you know, wake them up when they pass out. Uh, you feed them insure for weeks on end to make sure they don't they don't uh, uh, you don't have to deal with the chunks in their own vomit uh, when they almost certainly do vomit. You don't hear that about a lot on Christian radio. No, no, yeah. it's it's terrible. It's 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 basically exactly what. Um, it's barbaric. That's what it is. Yes. Yeah, and I am sorry that I have not. Uh, I feel I feel bad that I have not been louder about my denunciation of mm-hmm. it. Actually, I feel like I need yeah. to be out on out on the street with a sign. If any of our listeners have read Fox's book of Martyrs and mm-hmm. shuddered at thinking of what Christians had, what was done to them, you know they have these woodcut pictures where they stick funnels down their mouth and pour molten metal mm-hmm. down their throat. Waterboarding is just sort of like almost another version of that. Well, I think that may be a little extreme, but because the water is not that hot. But you it's think you're dead? Yeah. yeah, no, it's in, you're in the same it room. Harms you? Yeah, I, I have to I have to be careful because I don't want to get sidetracked because this is important. Any suspected unprivileged enemy belligerents considered a high value detainee shall not be provided with a Miranda warning. The bill asks the president to determine criteria for designating an individual as a high value t- detainee if he or she one poses a threat of an attack on civilians or civilian facilities within the U.S. or facilities abroad. Two poses a threat to U.S. military personnel or U.S. military facilities. Three potential intelligence value. Four is a member of Al Qaeda or a terrorist group affiliated with Al Qaeda. Uh, or five such other matters as the president considers appropriate. Seriously. The president must submit the regulations and guidance to the appropriate committees of Congress no later than 60 days after enactment. So not only does he get this, does the president get to do this per, all this stuff, uh, he can do it for uh, up to 60 days without with, with mm-hmm. complete impunity. To, to the extent possible, the high-value detainee interrogation team must make a preliminary determination whether the, de- the detainee is an unprivileged enemy belligerent within 48 hours of taking the detainee into custody. So you can take them and not read them your Miranda rights and all this stuff and not do 
That's crazy. The high-value detainee interrogation team must submit its determination to the Secretary of Defense and the Attorney General after the consultation with the Director of the National Intelligence, the Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, And it just goes on and on. Uh, uh, One final point that I would make is it bears noting that the President himself doesn't get to make the call. Okay. It's this... It's all the middlemen in the system yeah. between them to uh, provide him plausible deniability. Yep. <clears throat> yep. So what I gather from that, if I was going to put it in layman's terms, is particularly with that last little waiver point they put in there, mm-hmm. the president can decide anybody, citizen, for any reason they construe, to throw out all of your rights, detain you, and do as you wish. Yes. That basically right that there just it. wipes That's up. Totally I mean, it. I mean, they give some language here that sounds like, well, it's just for people tied to Al Qaeda or just that. Yeah. And then the last one says, well, whatever the president decides is important. Mm-hmm. So the president can can basically take anybody for any reason whatsoever. They have no rights. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that the oversight group are all wolves looking over the hen house. Mm-hmm. There's no hen representative in that group. Uh, in that group, that decision group, there's no group in there that is uh, representing uh, pr- protecting like, individual wait a rights. Minute. We might be wrong here. There, yeah. There's no incentive for anybody yeah. in that list of people to to go against anybody else in that group. Absolutely not. They're all. They'd they're all, all they want to be they quiet. Push the button like, and to err on the side of detain them, and yeah. nobody to say, uh, "Well, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's that's legal." What's my answer? My answer is here are a couple of cans of insure. Now, this was the man who was endorsed by, by James Dobson and a lot of the Christian conservatives, Christian radio, who? John McCain for president. Yes, John He's McCain. He's the one who recommended this. John McCain and Joe Lieberman. Yeah. Okay. So this this was they the one that was put forward support- this bill to, uh, you know, essentially allow the torturing of American citizens, you know, mm-hmm. not Miranda. Don't it, need to Eliminating their rights. Yeah, it's no big deal. Eliminating Miranda. any rights whatsoever. Miranda Miranda. Yeah. You think you have rights? Yeah. Here's a can of insure. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Well, at least our our Christian national Christian leadership didn't go for a crazy guy like uh, oh I don't I don't know uh, Ron Paul, Ron Paul yep. who who would have said that the human being has rights mm-hmm. and that uh, they at least have some kind of venue and attorney or somebody to make sure. So if a Christian is picked up, that the Christian might have an opportunity for redress. Yeah. We don't have an opportunity to redress because mm-hmm. now. Well, can I read one that's not as encouraging as that? Awesome. Um, on me. I, I thought of a prayer request to, uh, okay. to share with our listeners. Um, we are sticking our toe in the water right now, and not aggressively because we just want the Lord to do it, to see if the Lord would have us expand to larger venues of outreach. And that's something we definitely have no control over whatsoever. Uh, but we have taken an effort to at least explore it. And it's something out of our hands. But, ladies and gentlemen, if you feel like it's important that a future Quake show is heard by a larger group than one radio station in one part of the country, would you pray about it? And just pray that the Lord will do as well. And mm-hmm. we'll try to be patient, see what the Lord has to say. Mm-hmm. But at least I just wanted to mention to you all, because you all are such encouragers of us on our show, and I just appreciate your email yeah, so much. Please do. Okay. This is an admitted long one, and it may be my only story, but I think you'll understand why. And when I read this story, I want our listeners to think about our recent experience at Guantanamo Bay, our experience at Abu Ghraib, and also how we perceive our allies and people in the West, like the British 
and people who are close allies in their, their civility, okay? This just came out. I believe it's The Guardian, which is one of the main British newspapers. This just came out. Um, the, the, the article just came out. It's called Britain's Secret Torture Center, the interrogation camp that turned prisoners into living skeletons. It says, despite uh, this, as they often do, we'll start into a narrative here. Despite the six years of bitter fighting which lay behind him, James Morgan Jones, a major in the Royal Artillery, could not have been more specific about the spectacle in front of him. It was, he reported, one of the most disgusting sights of my life. Wow. Curled up on a bed in a hospital in Rotenburg near Bremen, Germany, was a cavernous shadow of a human being. The man literally had no flesh on him. His state of emaciation was incredible, wrote Morgan Jones. This man weighed a little over six stones or 38 kilograms, or 75 pounds, uh, 80 pounds, on admission five weeks earlier and was still a figure which may have been one of the Belson inmates from, you know, the concentration camp, mm-hmm. uh, or excuse me, from the uh, interrogation center. At the base of his spine was a huge sore and was terrified of returning to the prison. Okay, Adolf Gala, 36, a dental technician, was not alone. A few beds away lay Robert Butler, 27, a journalist, who had been admitting after swallowing a spoon handle in a suicide attempt at the same prison. He was emaciated and four of his toes had been lost to frostbite. The previous month, in January 1947, two other inmates, Walter Bergman, 20, and Franz Orderreicher, 38, died of malnutrition within hours of arriving at the hospital. Over the previous 13 months, Major Morgan Jones learned 45 inmates of this prison, including several women, had been dumped at Rotenburg. Uh, so they've been taken from this prison to this hospital. Mm-hmm. Each was severely starved, frostbitten, and caked in dirt. Some had been beaten or whipped. <clears throat> the same week that Major Morgan Jones was submitting his report, a British doctor called Jordan was raising similar concerns in an internment camp 130 miles away. Dr. Jordan complained to his superiors that eight men who had been transferred to the same, from the same prison were all suffering gross malnutrition. Now, this is 1947, after World War II, okay, in Germany. They uh, included uh, Gerhard Menzel, a German soldier uh, who was described as a living skeleton. Uh, another one uh, who was a 27-year-old Frenchman later uh, was found out to be Alexander Kal- Kalkowski, a captain in the Soviet secret police. Uh, he weighed a little over eight stones, uh, about the same weight, and complained that he had been severely beaten and forced to spend eight hours a day in a cold bath. Uh, prisoners complained thumb screws and shin screws were employed at the prison, and Dr. Jordan's report highlighted the small round scars that he had seen on the legs of two men, which were said to be the result of the use of some instrument to facilitate questioning. One of these men was Hans Haberman, a 43 disabled German Jew who had survived three years at Buchenwald concentration camp. Mm. All of these men had been held at Bad Nendorf, a small, once elegant spa resort near Hanover. Here, an organization called the Combined Services Detailed Interrogation Center ran a secret prison following the British occupation of Northwest Germany in 1945. So these are British people after the war torturing people. That's right. Wow. <clears throat> okay. This division, it's a division of the war operate, a war office, British war office, mm-hmm. operate interrogation centers around the world, including the one known as the London Cage, located in London's most exclusive neighborhoods. Official documents discovered last month in the National Archives show that the London Cage was a secret torture center where German prisoners who had been concealed from the Red Cross, okay, wow. kept from, were beaten, deprived of sleep, and threatened with execution or unnecessary surgery. 
As horrific as conditions were at the London cage, Baden-Indorf was far worse. Last week, Foreign Office files, which have remained closed for almost 60 years, were opened after a request by The Guardian under the Freedom of Information Act. These papers and others declassified earlier lay bare the appalling suffering of many of the 372 men and 44 women who passed through the center during the 22 months it operated before its closure in July 47. They detail the investigation carried out by a Scotland Yard detective, Inspector Tom Hayward, following the complaints of Major Morgan Jones and Dr. Jordan. Despite the precise and formal prose of the detective's report to the military government, anger and revulsion leap from every page as he turns a spotlight on a place where prisoners were systematically beaten and exposed to extreme cold, where some were starved to death and allegedly tortured with instruments uh, that his fellow countrymen had recovered from the Gestapo prison in Hamburg. Uh, even today, the foreign office is refusing to release photographs taken of some of the living skeletons on their release. Man. Initially, most of the detainees were Nazi party members or former members of the SS, rounded up in an attempt to thwart any Nazi insurgency. A significant number, however, were industrialists, tobacco importers, oil company bosses, and forestry owners who had flourished under Hitler. By late 46, the papers show, an increasing number were suspected Soviet agents. Some were NKVD officers, their secret police, mm-hmm. uh, Russians, Czechs, and Hungarians, but many were simply German leftists. Others were Germans living in the Russian zone who had crossed the line, offered to spy on the Russians, and were tortured to establish whether they were genuine defectors. Wow. One of the men who was starved to death, Walter Bergman, had offered to spy for the British and fell under suspicion because he spoke Russian. Haywood reported, There seems little doubt that Bergman, against whom no charge of any crime has ever been made, but on the contrary, who appears to be a man who has given every assistance and that of considerable value, has lost his life through malnutrition and lack of medical care. That's that's unconscionable. The, the, that doesn't even describe it. Go well, that goes on. The other man who started death. Uh, France Oerreicher uh, had been arrested with forged papers while attempting to enter the British zone in search of his gay lover. Uh, Hayward said that in his struggle for existence of or to get extra scraps of food, he stood a very poor chance at Baden-Indorf. Uh, it says many of Baden-Indorf's inmates were there, and this is a British-run camp, were there for no reason at all. Now, think of Guantanamo Bay, okay? Yeah, I know. I'll, I'll be I great. going over that with... One, a former diplomat remained locked up because he had learned too much about our interrogation methods. That's why they kept him. Wow. A diplomat. Another arrived after a clerical error and was incarcerated for eight months. As Inspector Hayward reported, there are a number against whom no offense has been alleged, and the only authority for their detention would be that they are citizens of a country still nominally at war with us. Today, the older people of Baden-Endorf talk about August 1st, 1945, the, the day the British arrive with undisguised bitterness. They talk about how they pulled into the village and they took over from an easygoing U.S. infantry division. Within the hours, the British had ordered everyone in the center to pack their belongings and leave. Uh, but it was heaving with refugees from the bomb-ravaged ruins of Hanover. Uh, it says, uh, we thought everybody would be allowed back in in a few days. Uh, then soldiers started putting barbed wire fences around the center of the village and began to realize this was going to be no ordinary camp. It says uh, uh, they they converted this bathhouse, uh, ripping out the baths, putting uh, steel doors in each cell, uh, and soon got the, uh, the, the prisoners in cattle trucks. Uh, it says uh, the commanding officer was Robin Tin I. Stevens, a monocled colonel, of the division of the Indian Army, who had been the second second into MI5 in 1939, and commanded Camp uh, 020, a detention center in Surrey. 
Uh, it says an authoritarian and xenophobe with a legendary temper. Stevens boasted that interrogators who could break a man were born and not made. Uh, of the 20 interrogators ordered to break oh. the inmates of Bad Nindorf, 12 were British, a combination of officers from the three service and civilian linguists. The remaining eight included a Pole and a Dutchman, who were mostly German-Jewish refugees who had enlisted on the outbreak of the war and who Inspector Hayward suggested might not be expected to be wholly impartial. Now, most of the warders, or the guys who run in the prison, mm -hmm. were soldiers barely out of their teens. Some had endured, I'm going to think of Abu Ghraib here, some had endured more than a year of combat, at the end of which they had liberated Belson. Some represented the more unruly elements of the British Army of the Rhine, sent to Bad Nindorf, the prison, after receiving suspended sentences for assault or desertion. So they picked, sounds like they picked kind of like lunatics. The, the, yeah, the, the sadistic guys to run it. Often Hayward, the British did. Hayward, they were the men, sort of individuals, likely to resort to violence on helpless men. The inmates were starved, woken during the night, forced to walk up and down their cells uh, from early morning to late at night. Uh, when moving up to prison, they're expected to run while soldiers kick them. Uh, one warder, a soldier of the Welsh Regiment, told Hayward, if a British soldier feels inclined to treat a prisoner decently, he has every opportunity to do so. He also has the opportunity to ill-treat a prisoner if he so desires. The foreign officer uh, briefed uh, Clement Attlee, the Prime Minister, that the guards had apparently been instructed to carry out physical assaults on certain prisoners with the object of reducing them to a state of physical collapse and making them more amenable to interrogation. Former prisoners told Hayward that they had been whipped as well as beaten. This, the detective said, seemed unbelievable until our inquiries of warders and guards produced almost unexpected corroboration. Threats to execute prisoners, which is very interesting after we just read your story, yeah. or to arrest, torture, or murder their wives and children were considered perfectly proper on the grounds that such threats were never carried out. Uh, any uh, prisoner thought to be uncooperative, uncooperative during interrogation was taken to a punishment sh sh uh, cell where they would be stripped and repeatedly doused in water. Think of waterboarding. Mm -hmm. This p punishment would continue for weeks, even in sub-zero temperatures. Naked prisoners were handcuffed back-to-back -back and forced to stand before open windows in midwinter. Frostbite became common. Uh, <clears throat> so... And he, this one guy says uh, he had been two years as a prisoner of the, in the Gestapo as an anti-Nazi. Uh, he says, never in all those two years have I undergone such treatments. Wow. Uh, the, one of the officers said their toenails were ripped out and they had been hung by his wrist during interrogation with weights tied to his legs. And it goes on and on. I think you, I think you get the idea of this. Um, so, so there's. Let me get this straight. There was a there was a camp that went on after the war. Where they took and they the, the British the British staffed, our allies yeah the British staffed uh, with people that were kind of crazy deserters and uh, people that were amenable to torturing people for sort of no reason and then took mm -hmm. it started out as it started out as a couple a couple uh, uh, Nazis and then went into just basically almost just random people. people they picked up yeah. People and, they picked up. And none yeah. of this was reported for years and years and years and years. Well, and there was a cover-up after that, okay? Uh-huh. Uh, it says Langham, uh, who was, uh, I guess, one of the guys here. Uh, okay. Inspector Hayward's investigation led to the courts martial of Stevens, Captain John Smith, the medical officer, and an interrogator, Lieutenant Richard Langham. They were held behind closed doors. A number of sergeants, men who carried out the beatings, were told they would be pardoned if they gave evidence against their officers. Langham, who had been born in Munich and fled to England with his parents, uh, denied that he had mistreated prisoners and was acquitted. 
Charges of manslaughter against Smith were dropped, but after a court-martial held entirely in secret, he was found guilty of neglect of the inmates and sentenced at the age of 49 to be dismissed from service. Wow. No service penalty at all. It says it's unclear if any of Stephen's superiors know or condoned what happened at Baden-Indorf, although his lawyers said they were prepared to spread the blame among senior army officers. And then there was a, before the court martial, there was a nervous debate among ministers and government officials on how to avoid the repercussions which would follow should the truth become known. So we have to keep this quiet to make sure that the public doesn't know because it may mean our job. So let's all just sort of right uh, all collude to not say anything about it. In fact, here's what they say. It says ministers were anxious that nobody should learn that this group was running a number of similar prisons in Germany. Uh, wow. There was also what the Chancellor and, uh, of Duke of Lancaster, Frank Pattingham, later to become Lord Longford, described as the fact uh, that we are alleged to have treated entertainees in a manner reminiscent of the German concentration camps. Uh, the army, meanwhile, said it was determined that the Soviets should not discover how we apprehended and treated their agents, not least because some would-be defectors might have second thoughts. So, it, and it goes further and says there was basically a, a cover-up all the way at the top. Uh, it says Stevens was a court-martial behind closed doors, uh, but he was acquitted of two charges, two others withdrawn, and was free to reapply to rejoin the MI5 after he'd done all this. That's that's terrible. So, but this wasn't the end of it. They closed it down eventually after this came out. It says the archives revealed that three months later, a custom-built interrogation center with cells for 30 men and 10 women was opened near the British military base. The inmates were suspected Soviet spies and were medically examined before interrogation. And and then they complained that most of the interrogators at this new place had been at Baden-Indorf and complained that drastic methods should not be employed. Uh, but uh, but the governor put his foot down. He said, this is the, the new governor over this, mm-hmm. why, if the military authorities were required to justify the arrest of each inmate and then handle them according to the standards enforced by prison commissioners in our own enlightened country, there was little point in having the interrogation center at all. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. So what he's saying is, why do we have it in this other country if we have to obey the law? Hmm. So, uh, and just in conclusion, they, they actually picked up a gentleman who was a, a, a former member of an annihilation squad in Warsaw, uh, who had been working as an agent for the Americans at the time of his death. And so he died at this place, but they had to keep it quiet because he had been killing people in Warsaw, but he also was working as an agent for the Americans. Hmm. And it says that the Americans insisted that, that his death be kept a very closely guarded secret because of the fact that the U.S. authorities had been employing him in full knowledge he was wanted by the Polish government as a war criminal. So the wooden cross over his grave was replaced with a gravestone, and they, they call him John White. Everything we see today with Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay is right old there. news. Yep, there, there you go. I'm sorry it's long, but I thought that That's was cool. very that? enlightening. I'm going I'm to hold on to that. <laughs> I'm hold on to that. I took up our time here. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. It's worth it. Let's get it. Let's get Mervin here, and we'll go. I don't know. Relax. Tell us how to contact. Tell them how to contact us here, Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Doctor Future and Tom Bionic at Doctor Future at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. I'm sorry. I was a little worked up. That's okay. Me too. That makes really makes me mad. It does it make does. me mad too. Yep. Well, those are those wonderful British people just like Americans. Yeah, you know, so we're civilized. the civilized. We're not like those brutal Run savage in torture camp in Japanese. The yeah, part of London. And We're not like those brutal, ja- you know, Japanese or savage Germans or or Islamic people. They're not refined like we are. They don't believe in human yeah. rights like we do. Yeah, you know. All right, I think we have to go. Yeah, we do have to go. Any last words? None. Let's just get. I'm sorry, I raced through that story. I no, thought it was important. You don't have to- it was good. It was very, very, very important to Our know. Our future yeah. need to know. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to know what you think about things. Tomorrow will be a, or next week will be a whole new set of stories and a new interview. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. quake.